0: The following is a conversation with Neil Stevenson, a legendary science fiction writer exploring ideas in mathematics, science, cryptography, money, linguistics, philosophy, and virtual reality, from his early book, Snow Crash, to his new one called Termination Shock. He doesn't just write novels. He worked at the space company Blue Origin for many years, including technically being Blue Origin's first employee. He also was the chief futurist at the virtual reality company, Magic Leap. And now, a quick few second summary of the sponsors. Check them out in the description, it's the best way to support this podcast. First is Mizanom Main, maker of my favorite performance dress shirts. Second is Inside Tracker, a service I use to track my biological data. Third is Athletic Greens, the all-in-one nutritional drink I drink twice a day. Fourth is Grammarly, service I use to check spelling, grammar, and readability. And fifth is ExpressVPN. The VPN I've been using for many years. So the choice is fashion, biological data, nutrition, grammar, or privacy. Choose wisely, my friends. And now on to the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out our sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This show... Is brought to you by a new sponsor, Mizzenham Main, the maker of comfortable, stylish dress shirts and other menswear, like pants. (laughs) I wear their black dress shirts, and I love it. It combines comfort and flexibility of athletic wear with the fit and style of a custom dress shirt. It's lightweight, breathable, and moisture-wicking. That is a term I often see on the internet, and I don't think I've ever said that word out loud. But there you have it. It's moisture wicking. They have a bunch of different styles on their website, but as you can imagine, the one I went for and the one I enjoy and the shirts, uh, several shirts that I have of theirs is just the plain black dress shirt. It's also the one I recommend. It looks badass. I've worn a lot of uh, black uh, dress shirts, like without a tie, just a little bit more casual. And I could say, hands down, this is the best one that uh, I've ever worn. Right now, if you go to mizzenandmain.com and use promo code LEX, you'll receive $35 off any regular price order of $125 or more. Go to mizzenandmain, that's two Z's, M I Z Z E N, and main.com and use our promo code LEX. This show is also brought to you by Inside Tracker, a service I use to track biological data from my body, and then from that, make decisions about my health. They have a bunch of plans, most of which include uh, a blood test that gives you a lot of information that you can then make decisions based on. They have algorithms that analyze your blood data, DNA data, and fitness tracker data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you and to offer you science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Andrew Huberman talks about these guys quite a bit Speaking of who, uh, Dr. Huberman, will be in town for a few days, probably a couple of weeks in uh, Austin this next week. So we're gonna hang out quite a bit, maybe do a podcast, I'm not sure. Just uh, talk as friends, talk about science, talk about life, philosophy, and everything else. He's uh, truly one of the human beings that inspires me, both because of his brilliance in the space of science, and just how authentic he is as a human being. Kind, real. Andrew's the man. Anyway, for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store if you go to insidetracker.com slash Lex. That's insidetracker.com slash Lex. This show is also brought to you by Athletic Greens and its newly renamed AG1 drink, which is an all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. It replaced the multivitamin for me and went far beyond that with 75 vitamins and minerals. I drink it twice a day. I drink it uh, early on before any meal and then later on in the day... When I go for a long run outside and it's hot, I enjoy coming back. And before hopping in the shower, I'll put actually, I'll make an Athletic Greens drink and I'll put it in the freezer. So over a period of like uh, 10, 20 minutes, it gets like nice and cold and refreshing. And just, it's a way to celebrate the run. I love that it gives me this nutritional base so I don't have to think about stuff as I do all the fun diets that I do in terms of low carb, in terms of uh, just meat with carnivore. Overall, I love the way it tastes and uh, the way it makes me feel. They'll give you one-month supply of fish oil when you sign up to athleticgreens.com lex. That's athleticgreens.com lex. This show is also brought to you by Grammarly, a writing assistant tool that checks spelling, grammar, sentence structure, and readability. Grammarly Premium, the version you pay for. And the version they hope you sign up for offers a bunch of extra features. My favorite is the clarity check, which helps detect rambling, overcomplicated chaos that many of us, especially me, can descend to even in this very ad read. In writing, in speech, in life, I enjoy the beauty of simplicity. Neil Stevenson, for this episode actually, elsewhere talked about how He doesn't like to edit a lot. He likes to write it well first. I think there's something really powerful to that. I think most writers just kind of get the stuff on the page and do a lot of work in the edit. It really makes me think to consider maybe you really need to bring your best game on the first draft and do very little editing after. I don't know. But tools like Grammarly surely can help make your first draft and your last draft the best it can possibly be. Grammarly is available on basically any platform and major sites and apps like Gmail and Twitter and so on. Do more than just spell check. Get your point across more effectively with Grammarly Premium. Get 20% off Grammarly Premium by signing up at grammarly.com slash lex. That's 20% off at grammarly.com slash lex. This show is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. I use them to protect my privacy on the internet. I know you think that when you use incognito mode on Chrome that the world cannot possibly track all the kinds of weird stuff you do on the internet. But ISPs, in fact, can track that information. They can uh, have access to that data and make decisions based on the things you do on the internet. So a VPN helps protect ISPs from getting that data. That's probably the most important thing to mention. Secondly, If you like watching stuff on the internet, you can change your location with a VPN so that the website thinks you're in Japan, in Britain, in Germany, in wherever else in the world, which uh, opens up geo-locked shows that are only available to certain locations. Finally, I should mention, I love great design. I love great implementation. ExpressVPN is super fast, works on any device and operating system, including my favorite operating system, Linux. Linux is a beautiful creation of humankind. Anyway, go to expressvpn.com slash lexpod to get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash lexpod. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with Neil Stevenson. You write both historical fiction, like World War II in Cryptonomicon, and science fiction, mm-hmm. looking both into the past and the future. So, let me ask, does history repeat itself? In which way does it repeat itself? In which way does it not? I'm afraid it repeats itself a lot. Um, so,
1: I, I think human nature kind of is what it is. And so, we tend to see similar behavior patterns emerging again and again. And so, uh, it's it's kind of the uh, exception rather than the rule when something new happens.
0: What role does technology play in the suppression or in revealing human nature?
1: Well, the standards of living, uh, life expectancy, all that have gotten incredibly better within the last, particularly the last hundred years. I mean, just antibiotics, uh, modern vaccines, electrification. Uh, the internet. Um, these are all uh, improvements in most people's standard of living and health and longevity that, um, that exceed anything that was seen before in, in human history. Um, so, um, so people are living longer, they're generally healthier, and so on. Uh, but again, um, we still see a lot of the same behavior patterns, some of which
0: are uh, not very attractive, so some of it has to do with the constraints on resources. Presumably, with technology, you have less and less constraints on resources. So we get to maybe emphasize the better angels of our nature, and in, in so doing, does that not potentially fundamentally alter the sort of the, the experience that we have of you, life on Earth?
1: You know, until the last ten or so years, I would have uh, taken that view. I think, but. Um, you know, uh, people who will find ways to be um, to be divisive and angry um, if it scratches a kind of psychological itch that they have got. And um, we used to look at the Weimar Republic, um, what happened in the economic collapse of Germany prior to um, the the rise of Hitler, um, World War II, uh, and kind of uh, explain. Hitler, at least partially by um, just the, the, the misery that people were living in at that time. Um,
0: the economic collapse.
1: Yeah. Hyperinflation and unemployment and um, the, the decline in standard of, of living. And that sounds like a, a plausible uh, explanation, but there are economic troubles now for sure. We had the bank collapse in 2008 um, and there's stagnation in some people's standards of living, but it's hard to explain what we've seen in this country in the last few years just strictly on the basis of uh, people are poor and angry and sad.
0: I think they want to be angry. So without being political in a divisive kind of way, can we talk about the lessons you can draw from World War II? Sure. This singular event in human history, it seems like. Yeah. And yet, as you say history rhymes at the very least
1: yeah being who i am i tend to focus on the curious technological things that happened in in conjunction with that war um which may not be where you want to go but uh well there's
0: several things and sorry to interrupt so one in crypto nomicon is more like the alan turing side of things right right and then and then there's the Outside of technology, well, it's, first of all, there's the tools of war, yeah. which is a kind of technology, mm-hmm. but then there's just like the human nature, the nature of good and evil.
1: Yeah. Well, so one of the things that emerges from uh, from the war and from the um, the extermination camps is that we were never allowed to have illusions anymore about human nature. So you you have to to learn that lesson to be a, an educated person, and you have to know that that even in a supposedly, you know, enlightened civilized society people can become monsters quite easily. So that is for sure the big takeaway.
0: Do you agree with Solzhenitsyn about uh, what is it uh the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man? Yeah. That great. all of us are capable.
1: Great line. Yeah. Of evil. Uh I I read a good chunk of the Gulag Archipelago when I was a teenager, because um, my my grandfather had it in his house, because he was one of these Americans who was obsessed with the Soviet Union and the Soviet threat, and and wanted people to to be aware of some of what what had happened, um, and so so he had those books lying around, and and uh, you know I would I would read them, and it's a similar kind of parallel story to the. what happened in 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 germany during the war you know this creation of this system of camps and and oppression and and uh lots of um troubling behavior
0: to me it's a story of um how fear and desperation combined with uh, a charismatic leader can lead to uh to evil but it's also a story of of bravery, of of love, of brother uh, brotherhood and sisterhood, and and basically survival. You have like a man search for meaning, mm-hmm. which is the stories of uh, the the story of a man in a concentration camp, basically finding beauty in life even under uh, most extreme conditions. So, to me, World War II is not necessarily uh, a bleak view of human nature. It's 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 a little. Moment of evil that revealed a much bigger good mm-hmm. in humanity. So I'm not. I'm not so sure that it leads me to pes- a pessimistic view of the world. The fact that uh, somebody like Hitler could happen, the fact that uh, a lot of people could follow Hitler and get excited and maybe even love the hate of the other. Yeah. For some moment of time, mm-hmm. I think that's all of us are capable of that. But I think all of us also have a capacity for good, and I think—I don't know what you what you think—but I think we have a greater desire for good than evil, and that it seems like that's where technology is very useful as a guide, hmm, okay. as, as a helping hand.
1: Okay. Okay. Can, can you give me a, an example, maybe? Uh,
0: so I, I give you examples of futuristic technologies and I can give you examples of current technologies. Current okay. technologies, uh, knowledge, uh, in the form of very basic knowledge, mm-hmm. which is like Wikipedia, mm-hmm. and search, the original dream of Google, yeah, that I think is very much a success, which is making the world's information accessible at your fingertips. That kind of technology enables the natural if if this uh, axiom this assumption that people want to do good is is true yeah. then letting them discover all of the information out there false information and true information all of it and let them explore that's going to lead to a, to a better world to to better people uh futuristic technologies is uh i personally i mentioned to you offline sort of love artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and so ai that's an assistant that's a guide like a mentor to you yeah that you can in the way that this google searches, but smarter where you can help send it out and say this is the direction in which i want to grow not uh authoritarian lecturing down from the algorithm of telling you mm-hmm. this is what this is how you should grow, but almost uh, the the opposite, where you use it as um, an assistant, uh, a, a servant in your journey towards knowledge. So yeah, that, that that sounds like an easy thing, but it's actually from an AI no, perspective very difficult.
1: I mean, this is the theme of a book I wrote called "The Diamond Age," which you know talks about a book that essentially does that, and um, I've been sort of watching people try to come at the the problem of building that thing uh from different directions for ever since the book came out, basically. Um and so uh the uh and, and so I, I kinda have a although I haven't worked on it myself, I do get a sense of the, the level of difficulty in in realizing that 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 goal.
0: Um so that book is in, in the nineties. So as Google is coming to be is yeah. essentially uh, not Google, but the search engine, the initial search engines, which gave birth to Google essentially in, in contrast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was still
1: in the era of Alta Vista and Ask Jeeves and multiple different uh, search engines. And yeah, I'm pretty sure I had not heard of Google at that point. That would have been 95, 96. I think the book came out in 94.
0: And then, of course, the social networks followed, which is another form of. Um, Guidance through the space of information.
2: Yeah. And- well,
0: what happens is
1: that these things come along and then people find ways to game them. Um, and so uh, I, I saw an interesting thread the other day pointing out that, um, you know, uh, 20 years ago, if you had Googled um, Pythagorean Theorem, uh, chances are you would have been taken directly to a page explaining the Pythagorean Theorem. If you do it now, you're probably going to, the top hits are going to be from somebody who's, who's got an angle, who's got a scheme, right? They're like trying to sell you math tutoring or, you know, they're um, uh, they're working some kind of marketing plan on you.
2: Um,
1: so the, the traditional engines um, become actually less useful over time for their original educational purpose. That doesn't mean that they can't it shouldn't be replaced by
0: newer and better ones. First of all, to defend the people with the angle,
3: mm-hmm.
0: right? They're trying to find business models to yeah. fund. Oftentimes, which is funny, you went with Pythagorean, <laughs> like you went at math. <laughs> Those greedy bastards. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but it's gr- it's great. Because- How can we
1: monetize the Pythagorean theorem? Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, education, right? Yes. It's to figure out, like people who love math education for example love it purely not purely but very often love it for itself for just teaching math yeah but then they start you know when coming face to face with for example like the youtube algorithm they start to try to figure out okay how can i make money off of this the the primary goal is still that love of education but they also want to make that love of education a f- their full time job, but I-, I see that sort of that dance of humanity with the algorithms as uh, it finds this kind of local pocket of optimality, that's or suboptimality, whatever. Yeah, it's gets stuck pocket, in it anyway. It's a pocket of some sort, and but I see that pocket is way better than what we had before
3: mm.
0: in the eighties, right? Nineties okay. before the internet, but like, and now we're now. This is this is also human nature. We start uh writing very eloquent articles about how this pocket is clearly pocket, it's not very good and we can imagine much better lands far beyond. And but the reality is it's better than before. Yeah. And now we're waiting for We have to like, escape a from a local yeah. minimum. And you have to wait either for lone geniuses or for some kind of momentum of a group of geniuses that just say, Enough is enough. I have an idea. Yep. This this is how we get out. And It's too easy to be sort of, I think, uh, partially because you can get a lot of clicks in your articles, being cynical about being in this pocket and we are forever stuck in this pocket. And then, like, coming up with this grandiose theory that humanity has finally, like, is collapsing, stuck forever, like a prison in this pocket. (laughs) But reality, they're just, it's like, it's just clickbait articles and and books until we, one curious ant, comes up with the next pocket.
1: Yeah, tunnels through the barrier, or
0: gets enough energy to jump over the the barrier, and eventually we'll be, uh, as you've talked about. I mean, we'll be, we'll colonize the solar system, and then uh, we'll we'll be stuck in the solar system, and then people will say, well, we're screwed when because when the sun energy runs out, there's no way to get to the the next solar system, and then and so on. It goes on until we colonize the entirety of the observable universe.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think getting out of the solar system is going to be a hard one. But, uh, so,
0: can you you mention this? Can you elaborate why you think back to sort of a serious question? Why do you think it's hard to get outside of our solar system?
1: It's just a energy calcul I mean, y- you can do it slowly uh, whenever you want, um, but uh, the idea of getting there in you know a one lifetime or multiple. A few lifetimes is uh, requires huge amounts of energy to to accelerate, um, and then you, as soon as you get halfway there, you need to expend an equal amount of energy to decelerate, or you'll just go shooting by. Um, and so um, that means carrying a lot of energy. And there's there's uh, ideas like Yuri Milner, I, I think, is still funding the the idea to use laser propulsion to send something. Uh, to another star system, a small object, um, but it'll have no way to slow down. As far as right. I know,
0: they never talk about that part. Yeah. Like, how do we slow down?
1: Yeah, um,
0: <laughs> so it's a quick flyby. You take a good picture, I guess.
1: Yeah, you better take some good pictures on your way by. So, and that's great if it happens. I'm not knocking it, uh, but the amount of energy is is uh, that's needed is just staggering. And there's there's other issues like just how do you maintain Uh, 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 an ecosystem for that long in isolation? Uh, How do you prevent people from going crazy? What happens if you hit something while traveling at a significant
0: fraction of the speed of light? What about sort of um, some combination of expanding human lifespan, but also just good old-fashioned, stable society on a spaceship?
1: Yeah, yeah, the the generation ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's the only way. It would it would have to keep going for a long time. Um and they might get to where they're going and find uh, a a shitty um solar system. Like we can try to <laughs> we can try to do some advanced survey, but I mean if if you get there and all of the planets in that solar system are just garbage planets, then it's kind of a big letdown. For, for this like thousand year voyage that you've just uh, you've just been on mm-hmm. right So I mean we have a pretty narrow range of, of parameters that we need to stay uh, between in order to survive um, in terms of the, the gravitational uh, field that we can deal with. Um, so that such a sets a bound on the size of the the planet and um, what we need in the way of temperature and atmosphere and so on. So, when you look at all those complications, then um, basically building uh uh sort of uh, exactly the environment we want out of available materials in this solar system starts to look a hell of a lot better um, It's hard to make uh um, an economic argument, let's say for 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 making that journey. Uh, One of the things I like about The Expanse is the fact that the people who are trying to build the starship to go to the other solar system are doing it for religious reasons. I think that's the only reason that you would do it, um, because economically, it just makes more sense to build rotating cylindrical space habitats and make them perfect.
0: Well, isn't everything done for religious reasons? Like, why do we... Exploration? Yeah. Like, what... Why, why do we go to the moon again mm-hmm. and do the other things? Uh, what has JFK said? is because not because they're easy, but because they're hard? Isn't that a, kind of a religious reason? I knew a veteran of the Apollo
1: program who once said that the Apollo moon landings were communism's greatest achievement. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so the conflict between nations is a kind of... Um, not a exactly kind of str-
1: a religion, but it's what you're
0: talking well, about. Well, it's a struggle right. for meaning. Yeah. I mean, uh, and that meaning isn't found in some kind of. It's, it's hard to find meaning in mathematics. Yeah. It's, it's found in some kind of. in music and religion, whatever, art. I mean, some people do, but those are
1: probably not enough of them to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, they, uh, people yeah. that find be- uh, yeah. meaning in mathematics, yeah. they yeah. usually find meaning between the lines, nevertheless, not in the actual, uh, for, like the proving. Sure. <laughs> Pro- proving some kind of thing. Fair enough. Yeah. So, from a cost perspective, do you actually see a possible future where we're be- b- building these kind of generation ships and just why not launch them one a year mm-hmm. out like uh, like wandering ants out yeah. into the into the galaxy? I have nothing against it. Uh,
1: it's just like I said, it's got a. Uh, the motivation to do it has to come from um, some kind of spiritual or or kind of
0: non-tangible
1: uh, calculus. So from
0: a business model perspective, you don't think there's a business model there? No, no way. One of the many fascinating things you've done in your life, you were, at the very beginning, you were the person that conv- convinced Jeff Bezos to start a, a spaceship company, a space company. Uh, you were there at Blue Origin. Uh, for a few years in the beginning, uh, working on alternate propulsion systems and, at least according to Wikipedia, uh, alternate business models.
2: Yeah, I mean,
1: to go back to the first thing you said, uh, Jeff Bezos is not a guy who required a lot of convincing. <laughs> um, he'd been thinking about it since he was five years old, and it was an inevitability. But um, the the idea um, that that kind of got hatched in 1999 was to, um, just do some, uh, advanced kind of scouting work, you know, w- explore the corners of the the space of, of possibilities. And so that's what, uh, that was blue operations LLC, which was the precursor to, to blue origin. And, um, so it was a small staff of people that, that did that for a few years. And I, th- I think it was about 2003, 2004 that uh, it swung decisively towards the direction it's, it's been following ever since, which is, you know, using basically existing aerospace technologies and models to make chemical-fueled rockets um, for space tourism. Uh, I believe and I continue to believe that the the fact that we use chemical rockets is just an accident of history that comes out of World War II. So until World War II, rockets are uh, being built on a small scale by people like Robert Goddard. Um, but then Hitler desperately wants to bomb London, um, but he can't quite reach it. And the Luftwaffe it has been kind of neutralized. So... He he decides he's going to lob warheads into it with with rockets, um, which is a terrible misallocation of resources. It's a terrible idea, but uh, so it only could have happened in a dictatorship controlled by a, a lunatic. Um, but that's that's the situation that existed. So they built these rockets. They you know that's the V two. Um, and then it's just a, a complete coincidence that that war ends with um, atomic bombs being developed in a completely separate superweapon program. And so suddenly the, the existence of the bombs creates a demand for rockets that didn't exist before. Because if you've got mm-hmm. atomic bombs, you need a way to deliver them. You can do it with bombers, but... Uh, it's a lot better to just hurl them to the other side of the world on the top of a rocket. So um, so suddenly rockets, which had gotten a boost because of Hitler's V2 program, got a much bigger boost during the, the 50s and 60s.
0: And it is a complete, you're right, I, for some reason I never thought of this. It is an accident of history that nuclear weapons are developed at a similar time. Yeah. First of all, it, nuclear weapons didn't have to be developed at the same time as World War II. Right. That's an accident in history. Yeah. And the fact, that, okay, so then Hitler started using rockets. That's an accident. Okay, <laughs> that's fascinating. That's a fascinating uh, set of coincidences.
1: Yeah, and which is true of a lot of technologies, by the way. By, by the time these rockets are kind of working, um, we've got hydrogen bombs that um, are so big and so devastating that um, nobody really wants to use them, but it turns out you can fit a capsule with a couple of people in it into the the socket on the end of a, uh, of, a of a missile that was made to hold a hydrogen bomb. Uh, so um, uh, so we start doing that instead uh, as a proxy for for having a war.
0: Um, um, I'd love to be in a meeting where the first guy brought that up as an idea. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably a Russian. Why don't we strap a person to the rocket?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it probably was because they did it first, right? Uh, The Russians did it. And they
0: had perhaps less respect for sort of safety protocols. Could be. They're a little bit more uh, willing to sacrifice the life of an astronaut or to risk the life of an astronaut. Could be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is basically the story of how... Through all of this competition and because of these historical accidents, you know, trillions of R&D dollars and rubles were put into um, development of chemical rocket technology, which is, you know, now advanced to an incredibly high degree. But there's other ways to make things go really fast, which is all all that rockets do. That's all orbit is. It's just going really fast. Um, And... Because so many nerds are obsessed with space, people have been uh, thinking about alternate schemes for as long as they've been thinking about rockets. Um, and so, one of the first things that you that I learned, kind of trying to explore new possibilities, uh, was that I could put all of my brain power to work and and be creative as I could and and invent some idea that I thought was new for making things go fast. And I would always find out that some guy in Russia or somewhere had, had thought the same idea up 50 years ago and figured out all the math. Yeah. You know? And so, so at a certain point you give up on trying to invent completely new ideas and just go poking around trying to find those guys. Um, so there's a number of, uh, of ideas that we looked at, you know, some are crazier, some are less crazy. But um, the direction that that company eventually took was was chemical
0: rockets. Is there something you can comment on possible ideas? Like, so first of all, like, uh, I mean, uh, uh, like, you could use nuclear, so nuclear pulse propulsion.
1: Yeah, so that's, I mean, you've probably heard of Project Orion, which... Um, was Freeman Dyson uh, and and some of his collaborators had a scheme to to power a large space vehicle by detonating atomic bombs behind it. Um, And so one of the other people who was working at Blue Operations during this time was George Dyson, the son of Freeman. And so we knew all about Project Orion, and he found an old film that they'd shot on a beach in La Jolla of a prototype of this that was powered by, uh, like, uh, lumps of C4. So that was an idea, but for a private company, obtaining a large number of atomic bombs was probably out of scope. So there's more of a theoretical thing. There's a conceptually similar approach using lasers that, uh, that Freeman worked on with Arthur Kantrowitz and some others where you take a pulsed laser and you fire it at a vehicle that has a block of ice on the back. And the pulse hits the uh, ice and flashes off a layer of steam that becomes plasma. And plasma is opaque because it conducts. And so being opaque, it then absorbs all of the energy from the laser pulse and gets really hot and just pushes on the, the back of the the block of ice. And then you wait a moment for that to dissipate and then you do it again. So it would just kind of uh, vibrate its way. Like it sounds really violent, but Freeman said that if you were wearing like rubber-soled tennis shoes standing in this vehicle, you would just feel a mild vibration. Um So there your source of energy is on the ground and you're getting higher specific impulse than you could get by burning chemicals. Um, Jordan Kerr and others worked on another laser system, uh, the late Dr. Jordan Kerr, that just would heat up a heat exchanger by converging, many converging solid state lasers from the ground. And Kevin Parkin, yeah, it works on a similar scheme that just uses uh, microwaves uh, to do that. Uh, we looked at um, tall towers. Uh, I spent a while looking kind of semi-seriously at giant bullwhips. Um, What's a bullwhip? Just a whip. Just uh, You have them here in Texas, right? It's yeah, I, just, I, yeah, yeah, I
0: understand. Yeah. <laughs> but how does that have to do with
1: propulsion? If you think about it, a whip is an incredibly simple... Primitive object Mm -hmm. that can break the speed of sound. So it's unbelievable in a way that for thousands of years, people with no technology have been able to to accelerate objects through the speed of sound Mm -hmm. just through an architectural trick just just you know just the physics of a moving bend of material in a medium Mm -hmm. um, can do this. So. Um, so that's the thing I still think about from time to time. You can use the same physics to make freestanding loops of chain or or other flexible materials um, that just kind of stand up under their own
0: physics. Um, I mean, it's kind of awesome to imagine. So you imagine using the same kind of physics of a whip, but have at the end of it... A spaceship. Yeah.
1: That would detach at the moment of maximum velocity. Why Why not? <laughs> why wouldn't that? So part of my motivation in studying that was to ask that, that question. Yeah. It, was, it was more uh, almost a symbolic way of saying, look, there's all kinds of physics we haven't explored yet. Um, it's no more crazy than the idea of chemical rockets. Um, It's just that uh, more money's gone into chemical rockets, right?
0: Can I ask you uh, a question on propulsion that's a little bit more out there? So I don't know if you've uh, seen quite a, a lot of recent articles and reports and so on about Uh, UFOs, Mm. like the Tic Tac aircraft. I keep seeing a lot of
1: chatter about it, but I haven't gone deep into it.
0: So the DOD released footage filmed by um, pilots, and there's a lot of reports about objects that moved in ways they haven't seen before that seem to uh, defy the laws of physics, if we consider the aircraft that we have today. And so the the reason I asked you that is because it kind of, um, to me, whatever the heck it is, it's inspiring for the possibilities of uh, ideas for propulsion. Mm, mm -hmm. If it's like um, secret projects from foreign nations or it's physical phenomena that we don't yet understand, like ball lightning, all those kinds of things, Mm -hmm. or if it is aliens or objects from an alien civilization. I most likely believe it's for, if it's an object from an alien civilization, it's gotta be like a really dumb drone that just like yeah. got lost. It's, <laughs> it's definitely not yeah. like the pinnacle uh, of intelligence. It's like some like teenagers like- uh, Science like, fair
2: experiment. Yeah, it just
0: yeah. flew for, yeah. for a few centuries out and just landed. And then we humans are all like really excited about this. <laughs> This uh, this wild thing. I mean, what do you you think about those? um, First of all, like the millions of reports of UFOs, right? There's some psychology there that's deeply cultural. uh, But also the possibility of aliens having visited Earth.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see some better pictures. Uh, For the reason I mentioned earlier, having to do with the difficulty of traveling between star systems, it's really hard for me to believe it's aliens uh, I, I just can't understand why you would um, go to all that trouble to transport something across light years, and then do what these UFOs are allegedly doing. Like, how is that interesting? How how does that justify the trip?
0: So, if you travel across, you know, those kinds of distances, you'd make a bigger splash.
1: First of all, I, I would expect that the the arrival of these things would be something we'd notice it's got to you know decelerate into into our solar system by uh, unless it got here really 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 slowly so i guess that's (laughs) that's a possibility and just kind of
0: snuck in so the end we would detect some kind of footprint in terms of energy
1: you would think so i actually think your idea of a science fair project gone gone bad you know it makes more sense in in that it would explain why these if these things are alien technologies they're just kind of hanging around our aircraft carriers for no particular reason like doing doing not trying to communicate
0: <laughs> yeah you know is it can you imagine a scenario where aliens have visited earth or are visiting earth and we wouldn't notice it at all oh sure i mean if they've got technology
1: to To get here, they've probably got technology to conceal the the fact that
0: oh, they're they're trying to conceal themselves. I meant more like they're not trying to conceal themselves, but Uh, we're just our cognitive capabilities are uh, like too limited, and we are not thinking big enough. We're Mm. we're looking for little green men. Yeah, we're looking for things that operate at a time scale that's human-like. Uh, you know, it's yeah. No, I yeah, I love thinking about ideas like that. That's
1: great. Science fiction novel, father, you know uh, that the aliens are are so different uh that we simply don't don't see them
0: i mean is there um you know in terms of language, do you think it would be difficult not aliens visiting us but traveling to other places to, to find a common language you you've written about the importance <laughs> of language in intelligent civilizations mm. um how difficult is the problem to bridge the gap between aliens and humans, yeah, in terms of language, so we're not lost in translation
1: yeah, I mean there's different takes on that, depending on how biologically similar they are to us. you know, I mean, there's a school of thought that says basically uh, advanced life has to be carbon based for just reasons of chemistry, so right away, if you impose that limitation, then you're, you're kind of assuming a, uh, something that's starting to be biologically similar to us. So if they're about as big as we are and, uh, you know, they, um, they, they kind of move around in, in space, you know, in a physical body, the way we do, then, then there's probably a way to, to solve that communication problem. Uh, if they're, you know, like beings of pure energy from Star Trek or right. something like that, then
0: it's a, different story well i love thinking about that kind of stuff too i mean this the you know consciousness itself may be may be alien i mean it, it could be like you said <laughs> beings of pure energy um I, I think i think of life as just complex systems and the, the kind of forms those complex systems can take seems to be much larger than the particular biological systems we see here on earth um, I have to ask a Twitter question. Okay. About aliens. Yeah. You're ready, ready. This is for I'm, Twitter. I'm ready. What, what would you expect from Twitter? Yeah. Can humans have sex with aliens? Neil Stevenson. <laughs> Um <laughs> You can pass. <laughs> <laughs> I asked the language question. Can they commu- communicate? Yeah. Uh, um, can they fall in love before before sex? That's how it works.
1: So, which question are, am I answering? The sex or the the love?
0: Um, I mean, it depends. What is more fundamental to relations across, yeah, yeah. across intelligent species?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, sex can mean a lot of things. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, uh, if reproduction, you're, right? You, you know, the the in in Star Trek, in classic Star Trek, you had to to really suspend your disbelief to to think that um, Spock was half Vulcan and half human right? Cause that's just not gonna, not gonna work DNA wise. Um, so, um, so if, if by sex, you mean reproductive sex, then, um, uh, I would say no, unless you, you, unless you go to a panspermia, um, kind of theory, which is that, uh, you know, humans were seeded onto the planet as part of a galactic, uh, you know, uh, Uh, program of some of some sort Hmm. Um, and
0: then we're just returning home
1: yeah hanging out with our old relatives distant cousins yeah
0: yeah Yeah. um
1: (laughs) but that that doesn't seem you know it doesn't seem seem plausible we we know that we know that humans had sex with neanderthals with denisovans denisovans Mm -hmm. um so you could think of them as aliens Mm -hmm. that that came from our planet um so, um, so that's a kind of data point, I guess. Um, but um, you know, if you broaden your definition of sex to mean any kind of uh, gratifying
0: physical interaction, then sure. right. <laughs> Dancing. And that's, that's how we get to love. Okay, And love can take many forms. Love can certainly take many forms. I have to ask you, um, in terms of space. Just looking at where Blue Origin is, looking at where SpaceX is today, mm-hmm. and maybe looking out ten, twenty years out from now, are you impressed with what's happening? We just saw William Shatner go up to space. Yeah, I was. Uh, I
1: was just watching his video the, this morning before I came here. Yeah, <laughs> are
0: yeah. you impressed with where things stand today?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean SpaceX, in particular, is has done things that are just unbelievable. Um, and um, uh, I don't think anyone was anticipating um, 20 years ago, let's say, when this all started, just the uh, the speed with which they'd be able to um, rack up these incredible achievements. If you've kind of uh, even seen a little bit of how the sausage is made, and, and so sort of the, the the difficulty of, of doing any kind of space travel, um, what they've achieved is... Uh, is just, uh, is, is unbelievable.
0: What about the, maybe a question about Elon Musk, um, even more than Jeff Bezos, he has a very kind of ambitious vision mm-hmm. of um, this project that we're on as a species, yeah. of becoming a multiplanetary species and becoming that quickly, like yeah. as I, soon as possible, landing right. on Mars, colonizing Mars. Yep. What do you think of that project? There's two questions to ask. First, the question is, what What, what do you think about the project of colonizing Mars? Mm-hmm. And second, what do you think about a human being who is so unapologetically ambitious at achieving the impossible, at what a lot of people would say is impossible?
1: I think that colonizing Mars is the kind of of goal that's uh, it's easily stated. Uh, it, it's um, it's catchy. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing that that can inspire people to get involved in a way that some other programs might not. Um, so I think it's well chosen in that way. Um, I have technical questions about, um, (laughs) you know, there's, there's a a problem of perchlorates, uh, on the surface of Mars. That's, that's going to be big trouble. Um, and there's, there's radiation. So, and this is known. I'm, uh but
0: um what about business questions? Do you mm-hmm. think because you mentioned sort of uh going outside of the solar system would would best be done for religious reasons. Um what about colonizing Mars? Can you spin it into a business proposition?
1: It's hard to think of a resource that's on Mars that could be brought back here cheaply enough to compete with um uh with stuff we could just dig out of the ground here or grow here, um, so I, I don't know if there is a business plan for that, or if it's just strictly we're going to go there
0: and and see what happens. Um, you know, maybe again we need communism to kind of yeah t- to get us going <laughs> to give us a reason, a little bit of the competition.
1: Well, there's plenty of people who are sufficiently excited by the colonize Mars vision that they're willing to to just go all in on it um, even if there's not a, a business plan behind it um, so so I think it's well chosen it's just uh, um, uh, I, I think it's probably the only um, the only approach to take um, you know, a, a lot of the when when white people came to this continent and and started colonizing it, you know, uh there was not a lot of coherent planning. Like what what plans they did have turned out to be terrible plans. Um, you know, trying to come up with plans that extend
0: decades into the future is uh is a waste of time. To so do it for the kind of the like unexplainable love of the unknown, like like the the uh, the journey towards exploring the unknown. Yeah. And just kind of keep going.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you
1: saw it with Shatner and his uh, reaction to the the flight uh, yesterday. Um, he, uh, um, for him, that trip was more than worth it just for these intangible reasons.
0: What did he say? I haven't watched the video yet.
1: He was trying to express the, the talking a lot about the moment where
0: suddenly you kind of
1: Rise above the the thin blue blanket of uh, of the atmosphere, and and you're up into the the blackness, um, and uh, that had a huge impact on him. So he was kind of uh, I wouldn't say groping for words because he was pretty eloquent, but he was trying to express his feelings about that um, in, in a way that uh, is is pretty pretty gripping to
0: watch. So. you've worked on this kind of stuff. We can go back to 10 years ago. You wrote an essay uh, called Innovation Starvation. You worked on this kind of idea uh, since then. Kind of looking at uh, maybe a little bit cynically about our age today and our unwillingness to take on big risky projects. So in the face of that, what do you think of uh, people like Elon Musk? Because to me, people like that are inspiring and gives you hope in the face of uh, a more kind of um, pessimistic perspective of, uh, of our age. Yeah, well, he's clearly
1: willing to tackle um, big, ambitious uh, projects uh, without a lot of um, kind of soul searching or, uh, or or sort of trying to make up his mind, right? <laughs> it's just like,
0: um, just go and do it let's dig tunnels under cities go you know let's yeah. um, um step yeah. one make a joke about it on Twitter, step two actually do it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh I mean things have slowed
1: down uh quite our our ability to um to to build things uh uh at pace um is is a lot less than it was, and there's there's reasons for that you know we're more concerned with safety and environmental impacts than, um, than people were when they were building, uh, some of the great public works projects of the mid 20th century. Um, but even we're at the point now where even just maintaining the stuff that we've got is such a huge project, um, that we need to put big resources into it and, and good minds into it. Um, or else we're going to be, we're going to be losing, uh,
0: things that, that we take for granted, Do you think that there's a lot to be done in the digital space? That's, uh, we mentioned sort of Wikipedia and knowledge. Don't you think there could be a lot of flourishing in the space of innovation, in terms of innovation in in the digital space? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to
1: see that. I I think it's where a lot of the brainpower went during the last couple of generations um, because people who, who might previously have been building rockets or Or other kinds of sort of hard technologies uh, ended up instead going into programming computer science, uh, which is understandable and and great. Um, We've got structural problems right now in the way social media works that are pretty severe. And so I certainly hope that we're not 10 years from now that we're not exactly where we are today when it comes to,
0: to that stuff. We need to move on. The beautiful thing about problems is they show you how not to do things. Yeah. And they uh give you give opportunity to uh new ideas to flourish and to beat out the ideas of the old, mm-hmm. which is uh a dream for me in in to to see um new social media. Yeah. that beats out the ways of the old. So I I, I tend to you perhaps agree that it's not that it's impossible to do social media well.
1: Oh, not at all. I mean, I I listened to your uh, interview with Jaron a couple of weeks ago, and I I I know Jaron, and
0: we've and you know, we've talked about this. And he went he went hard on me. He basically said, like, it, it is it's very, impossible.
1: <laughs> it's very nice. Well, the last time I kind of paid attention to Jaron's thoughts on it, he was thinking in terms of that basically there should be you know micro payments. Uh, such that if i by clicking the like button on something i'm essentially giving um valuable intellectual property to facebook or twitter or whatever uh it's not a very large amount of ip but it's definitely a transfer of information that that when they aggregate it is beneficial to them so and now i now i do remember that he uh on on his interview with you
0: was talking about, what, data unions or,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Those are a lot of interesting ideas, but for me, the biggest disagreement was in the level of cynicism. He has a distrust and a cynicism towards people in Silicon Valley being able to do these kinds of things. And I'm really, okay, when you have a large crowd of people that are doing things the wrong way, mm-hmm you should nevertheless maintain optimism because what's important is to find the one person in that room that's going to do things the right way. Cynicism is going to completely silence out the whole room. So he was saying, I've, I've been here a long time. Oh, yeah. I, I've known, you know, I I understand like how these folks work. They think they're gods and they know the right way to do things and they will tell you how to do those things and that kind of hubris is going to always lead you astray when you are the one who's engineering the algorithms and there's a lot of deep truth to that because algorithms are powerful and uh many people when given power do not do the best of things i mean most what what is it uh the old lincoln line if you want to test a man's character give him power yeah Yes. But that doesn't mean that some people are not able to handle the power and that some people are not able to come up with good uh ideas that create better social media.
1: Yeah, I didn't interpret Jaron's statements as as being entirely cynical and, and hopeless. I mean he's he's definitely raising, you know, issues of concern. Um, but he wouldn't be out, you know, writing the books that he's written. And talking about this stuff, if you didn't think
0: there was a way. If you if didn't think there was hope, yeah. And part of it, as you probably know with Jaron, he just loves a good argument. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he just loves to have a little bit of fun. Well, I have to ask you about, uh I mean, we talked about taking all big, bold, risky ideas. So in your new book, Termination Shock, it's set here in Texas. Part which, part of it is, yeah. Yeah. most the, Most of it. Yeah, it's a great place to set it. So in it, the main character, T.R. McCooligan, a Texas billionaire oil man and truck stop magnate, decides to solve climate change, to take on climate change by himself. So this is an interesting philosophical exploration of how to solve climate change from a perspective that's perhaps different than we've been thinking about.
1: I wouldn't wouldn't use the word solve, but let's say ameliorate ameliorate. the temporary
0: effects but please take on yeah take on the challenge so it's it's very interesting but as so there's a gradual nature to this process and i mean just like in 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 your book um the power of innovation is something that has uh saved us quite a few times in history so, what role does that play as in this gradual process?
1: Right. So, ultimately, we don't solve the problem until we get the CO two out of the atmosphere. Um, but that is going to take a while. Um, we're still adding more. Uh, we haven't even started to to reduce the amount. So,
0: um, so there's two possibilities inside to interrupt, is reduce the amount that we're putting in the atmosphere. And two is removing what we got in the atmosphere.
1: We have to do both.
0: Right. And those are two different kind of uh, efforts in terms of like what's involved.
1: Because it stays up there. So I think just last week, China announced that they're going to try to level off their CO2 emissions in like 2030. So 2031, they'll only put as much CO2 into the atmosphere as they did in 2030. Which is still a lot of CO2 in 2060 they're saying we'll be net zero so if everyone in the world does that and the ppm of CO2 in the atmosphere by then is say 450 parts per million it'll stay at 450 parts per million until we take it out <clears throat> and taking it out um, is hard it's a you know it's a big it we, we took us a long time. We had to empty out huge coal mines and oil reservoirs and burn all that stuff. We had to chop down forests and dig up peat bogs um, in order to create all of that CO2. And so we have to reverse all of those processes uh, somehow in order to remove the CO2 and get it back down, hopefully into the 200 and some parts
0: per million range where it used to be. So how about you get a, a single Texas billionaire to have a massive gun that blasts huge quantities of sulfur into the up, upper atmosphere? So this like is, that's idea number one. That's uh, this
1: is called solar geoengineering, and it's uh, we know that it's a possibility on a technical level because volcanoes have been doing it forever. Um, so many times in human history, we've seen a volcanic eruption that was followed by a global cooling trend that lasted for a couple of years. And uh, one of these things happened, I think in the 60s or 70s in Indonesia. And, um, and the Australians sent a, a plane up into the stratosphere to take some samples of the plume. And when it came back down, the windscreen of the plane had sort of a deposit on it. So one of the Australian scientists licked it <clears throat> and reported that it was painfully acid, mm-hmm. so that was our first kind of clue that what was being injected into the stratosphere was sulfur dioxide. Um, so um, and and so we know. But then well, Pinatubo came along in the '90s and and did this experiment for us. So we know that sulfur in the uh, in the stratosphere it forms little uh, spherical droplets of sulfuric acid after it combines with water. And those bounce back some of the sun's rays and um, reduce the amount of, of solar energy entering the troposphere, which is where we live. So um, so we know that it works. And we also know that the stuff goes away after a couple of years. So it gradually washes out. And so it's not a permanent thing. You have to, the, it's a the good news, bad news is um good news is it's not permanent so if you don't like what's happening, you can just stop and wait a couple of years and you'll get back to where you started and the, the the bad news if if you're in favor of this kind of thing is that you have to keep doing it forever. Or, um, so so this guy is one of those he he's read these papers he he under the TR, the character in the book he knows all this and all all people who, Uh, are familiar with climate science are kind of know this it's a pretty well-established fact and so um he just decides he's going to take action unilaterally and and do this um and so uh there's different ways to get the sulfur up there but because it's texas he builds the biggest gun in the world Uh, it's just six barrels pointed straight up and he begins firing shells loaded with sulfur into the stratosphere. And so the book is about not so much that as how people react to his doing that, uh, what the political ramifications are around the world, because, you know, this is an extremely controversial idea and not everyone's on board with it. And even if you are willing to consider using a technological intervention, the the fact is that it's going to have different effects on different parts of the world so some areas may suffer um negative uh you know more negatives than positives uh and they're not going to be happy
0: so what do you think uh so in in his case in tr's case he can get around you know getting permission from governments if we were to look at our us facing um Outside of the story, us facing climate change, where do you think the solution will come from? Governments working together or from uh, bold billionaire Texans?
1: I'm pretty sure that this kind of intervention is never going to emerge from Western democracies um that,
0: this kind of sorry government coordinated uh, uh which which option one so or s- option? solar geoengineering solar geoengineering yeah uh, from a government from our uh, from, like those are i i want to sort of the distinction one is the idea the technological idea you're talking about but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. two uh two is like who comes up with the idea and agrees on it governments yeah. or individuals
1: yeah if this were to happen i think it would be either an individual or more likely just a uh, some government somewhere that just decides it's in their interests to to unilaterally do this. And, you know, that's not me advocating it. It's just, uh, it's so, it would be comparatively so cheap and easy to implement the, a solar geoengineering scheme that um, someone is probably going to do it once things get get bad enough. But I don't think that that governments will, I th- or Western governments, just because they're not. Um, well, we, we've seen what happened with with vaccines, right? So, um, g- you know, getting getting people to to take vaccinations or wear masks, you know, has turned out to be incredibly hard, even though it might it might save those people's lives.
0: See, I blame. That's not Western. That's I blame failure of leadership there, of, mm-hmm. of leaders being not coming off as authentic, not being inspiring, uniting, all those kinds of things. I think that's possible. I, th- I think it's it's just that we've gotten, the leaders we have right now- Aren't the, the right people. Are, aren't the right people, because we've lived through kind of a long stretch of relatively comfortable times. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels like unfortunate, if you just look at history, that hard times make great leaders and easy times make, Uh, like bureaucrats that are egotistical and greedy and not very interesting and not very bold. Yeah,
1: no, I think that's fair. So, you know, we may be entering one of those interesting times, you know. (laughs) Of hardship. (laughs) In the Chinese curse sense, yeah. So um, um, so I could be wrong, but, I mean, there have been some efforts to uh, explore solar geoengineering. Uh, There was a... uh, a plan to send up some balloons, high altitude balloons to take some measurements uh, in Scandinavia that got um, squashed by uh, objections from people who lived up there uh, uh, who uh, who were just opposed to the whole program on on principle. Um, so we'll see a lot more of that and uh, it's going to be a hard program to advocate for just because I think people don't quite understand how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere and uh how far we are from from even slowing down the rate that we're adding more to say nothing of bringing that number down we're a
0: long way out from from that do you see in terms of portfolio of solutions us becoming a multiplanetary species as part of that as a as this also being a motivator for investing some percent of uh, GDP into becoming a multiplanetary species? And what percent should that be, do you think?
1: You know, in an indirect way, maybe. I mean, you know what people will say, which is, is the same argument that has been leveled against space exploration since the Apollo program, which is why don't we solve our problems here on Earth before we uh, spend money going into space. So I've never been a believer in that that argument um i think um there could be a a sense in which the new perspective that could be obtained by uh you thinking about like if we're thinking about terraforming mars changing its atmosphere making it more amenable to to life and survival um you, you could see that maybe changing people's opinions about terraforming the earth
0: yeah there are some dangerous consequences to this particular uh idea of blasting software uh, of geoengineering um what do you make of sort of big bold ideas that have uh that are a double-edged sword are all ideas like this all, all big ideas like this they have uh they have the potential to have um highly beneficial consequences and a potential to have highly destructive consequences?
1: I wouldn't say all. I think, you know, going back to the, what we were talking about earlier, you know, how technology developed in the 50s and 60s, there was a, a period of time there when um, people maybe had unrealistic ideas about new technology and weren't sufficiently attentive to the possible downsides. So, um, so we got... Um, and and there's a reason why. I mean, uh, the the there's the, you know in, in the mid 20th century we saw you know antibiotics, we saw the polio vaccine, we saw um, just simple things like refrigerators in the home. You know, um, my my grandmother to her dying day called the refrigerator the ice box because when she grew up it was a box with ice in it. So you see all that change, and it's largely for the benefit of people. And so if somebody comes along and says, hey, we're going to build nuclear reactors to to make energy, or um, here's a new um, chemical called DDT that's going to kill uh, mosquitoes, then um, it's easy to, uh, to just buy into that and not be alert to the possible downsides and... Of course we know that um the the way that those early reactors were built and the way that the the supply chain uh was built to 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 create the fuel um, and deal with the the waste um was was poorly thought out and uh and and we're still dealing with the uh the the resulting problems at places like Hanford in in the state of Washington and we know that uh, DDT, although it did kill a lot of insects, um, also had terrible effects on bird populations. Um, so the the kind of backlash that happened in the seventies that is still kind of going on is is to sort of assume that everything is a double edged sword and always to look for, to, to, you know, we have to absolutely convince ourselves that the the downside. Uh, isn't going to come back and and bite us uh, before we can adopt any new technology, and I I think the the people um people are overly sensitized to that now.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny. Depending on the technology, people are a little bit too terrified of certain technologies, like artificial intelligence is one. My sense is that the things that they're afraid of aren't the things that are likely going to happen in terms of negative things. It's probably impossible to predict exactly the unintended negative consequences. But what's also interesting is for AI as an example, Not people don't think enough about the positive things. I mean, the same is true with social media. It's very popular now for some reason to talk about all the negative effects of social media. We've immediately forgotten how incredible it is to connect across the world. There's a a deep loneliness within all all of us. We long to connect and social media, at least in part, enables that even in its current state. Mm -hmm. And all the negative things we see with social media currently are also in part just revealing the basics of human nature. It didn't make us worse. It's just bringing it to the surface. And step one of solving a problem is bringing it to the surface. The fact that we are divided, there's a division. The fact that they're were easily angered and upset, and all all of that, the witch hunts, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. That's human nature, and it just reveals that. Allowing us to now work on it, it's therapy. Yeah, <laughs> and so that that's another example of a technology that's just we're we're not considering this, the the po- positive effects now and in the future enough. Of, I have to ask about. Um, There's a million things I can ask you about, but virtual reality—I got gotta ask Uh, you—you've thought about virtual reality, mixed reality, uh, quite a bit. What are the uh, interesting trajectories you see for the proliferation of virtual reality or mixed reality in the? Yeah,
1: so I was um, I was at Magic Leap for what five years Um,
0: with the best title of all time.
1: Oh. Thanks. F- chief, chief futurist. Yeah. Yeah. And so I sort of had a, a little squad of people in, in Seattle doing what you might call content R&D. So we're trying to make content for AR, but um, because it's such a new medium, uh, we, there's, it's, it's more of an engineering R&D project almost than a, than a creative project. So it was fascinating to see um everything that goes into m- making uh an AR system that runs um so AR um an AR device if it's really going to do AR needs to be running SLAM in
0: real time and that alone is a big As, So for people who don't know first of all virtual reality is Creating a almost fully artificial world and putting you inside it. Augmented reality AR is taking the, the real world and putting top on top putting stuff on top of that real world. And when you say slam, that means in real time the device needs to be able to sense accurately detect everything about that world sufficiently to be able to reconstruct it the, the 3D uh structure of it so you can put stuff on top of it and doing that in real time presumably not just real time but in the way that's creates a pleasant experience for the human perception system is uh yeah that's a that's an engineering project
1: right yeah well said and it's just one of the things that the system has to do it's also tracking your eyes so it knows what you're looking at uh how far away what you're looking at is um, it's uh, um, it's performing all those functions, um, and it's got to uh, keep doing that without you know burning up the the CPU or 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 uh, depleting the battery uh, unreasonably fast. And that's that's just table stakes. It's just the basic functions of the the operating system, and then. Any content that you want to add has to sit on top of that. It's got to be rendered by the optics um, at a sufficiently low latency that um, it looks real and you don't get sick. So it's an amazing thing, and um, you know, magically shipped uh, device that can do that in 2019. Um, and they're about to ship the ML two, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know any more about that than anyone else
0: because. And don't work there anymore. Um, but does it still, in, to some degree, boil down to a killer app, a, a content question? Like you said, it's kind of a wide open space. Nobody knows exactly what's going to be the compelling thing. Yeah. So doesn't a super compelling experience of some sort alleviate some of the need for engineering perfection?
1: Well, there's a a base layer of engineering that you have to have no matter what. Um, but you're certainly right that people, like in the early days of video games, put up with kind of low frame rate and, and what we would now call crappy graphics because they were having so much fun playing Doom or, or whatever. Right.
0: Even Tetris.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, so for sure that's true. And so, um, you know, a, a, I was... Uh, working on consumer-facing content, um, there, was a, there was a great team in Wellington, New Zealand that then made a game uh, called uh, Doctor Grodbrut's uh, Invaders that um, that uh, realized the the potential of uh, of AR gaming in a way that I don't think anything else has uh, before or since, um, and. Um, so that was definitely the strategy um, <clears throat> until uh, what April 2020, which is when the company decided to uh, pivot to commercial industrial applications instead. Um, so um, and you know I, I I haven't seen their 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 financial projections, but I assume they had good reasons for for making that strategic. Decision. Um, it just means that it's no longer uh, necessarily targeted at at just end users who want to play a
0: game or or be entertained. But it's you know that to me, from a sort of a, a dreamer f- futurist perspective, is heartbreaking because I I, yeah. I I don't know necessarily from in the VR space, but I see this kind of thing with uh, with robotics, where to me the future of robotics is consumer facing, uh, and a lot of great roboticists, Boston dynamics and, uh, companies like that are focused on sort of industrial applications. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, for financial business reasons.
1: Yeah. No, I, I, can see the parallels for sure. You know, we'll see. It was a fun, uh, project. You know, we, uh, uh, we worked on, a an app for example called baby goats which just populated your room with with baby goats that seems like a killer app right there well see, we we thought highly of the of the idea for sure yes um so but because <laughs> of the slam uh the the um the system knew for example here's a table here's a little end table we know the heights uh we know how high a, our animated baby goat can jump um and so, um, so our engineers had to, to build a system for converting the SLAM primitives into um, game engine objects um, that, that the, uh, the, game, uh, the AIs in the game could navigate mm-hmm. around. Um, so, um, and that ended up shipping as more of a dev kit or a sort of how-to, a sample app, mm-hmm. than as a, a finished consumer-facing
0: you I mean the baby goat AI, yeah. Yeah. I That seems to me like a world, I could ent- entertain myself for hours, just every day coming home to to, to, to see baby goats.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was an ambient kind of, mm-hmm. it's not It's not a thing that you would sit there and play like a, a, a video just game. Just life. Yeah, yeah.
0: But now <laughs> there's baby goats. You, I mean, what's the purpose of having dogs and cats right. in your life, exactly? Right. It's yeah. kind of ambient. Yeah, they're not really helping you do anything, but it's enriching your life.
1: And you can go and play fetch or something for yeah. a while if you want, but you don't have to. Right? Yeah. So, uh, so we worked on that and a bigger project that was more of a f- storytelling and a fictional uh, universe. Um, the hardware is worth a look. There's still a belief. I just saw it this morning looking at Twitter that the Magic Leap never shipped anything. Uh, but they've been since 2019 you can go to their website and buy one of these devices anytime you want to spend the money
0: yeah Uh, and the new one is coming out i think in 2022 so in in a a few months what do you think looking out 50 years from now what wins virtual reality augmented reality or physical reality what wins? Meaning, like, what's uh, yeah? What do people of that have financial resources enjoy spending most of their time in?
1: Mm-hmm. I've always been a fan of of, of of AR, and it's kind of an easy answer because if you if you're wearing an AR device, and you put a bag over your head, it becomes a VR device. You know, it just it if you block out the what's really there. Then all you're seeing is, is is a VR.
0: But yeah. you are with AR constrained to to kind of operate in something that's similar to physical reality. Yeah. With VR, you can go into fantastical worlds. True, true. So there are
1: still issues in in the, those fantastical worlds with um with uh, motion sickness, right? So. Um, if if your uh body is experiencing acceleration your inner ear um that that's differs from what your eye thinks it's seeing then you'll get sick uh unless you're a very unusual person so it doesn't mean you can't do it it just it's a a constraint that VR designers have to uh to learn to work with
0: so do you think it's possible that in the future we're living mostly in a virtual reality world. Like we become more and more detached from physical reality.
1: For entertainment, maybe for certain
0: applications,
1: um, I'm personally more, uh, I mean, the, we have to make a distinction between what I would personally find interesting and, you know, what might win in, in the market. So maybe some people, maybe lots of people would like to spend a huge amount of time in, in VR, um, I'm personally more interested in um, enhancing the experience that I have of the, the physical world because the physical world's pretty cool, right? And there's a lot, lot
0: to be said for uh,
1: for moving around in the real world. And
0: can I ask you for you personally, yeah, to try to play devil's advocate or to try to construct to imagine a VR world where you and Neil Stevenson wouldn't want to stay Uh, not because the physical world all of a sudden became really bad for some reason like you're trying to escape it yeah but like literally it's just more enriching in the same way like there's a glimmer in your eye when you said you enjoy the physical world like uh double up on that glimmer for the for the the virtual reality can you imagine such a world
1: well like I'll give maybe an example that's a bridge, which is that I've been, um, I like making things. Um, so I like working in a machine shop and, and, and making objects with 3d printers or machines or whatever. And so I've had to learn how to get good at, um, using a CAD program. Uh, you know, there's many to choose from. I use one called fusion 360. Um, and, uh, I can spend hours in that, um, trying to create, imagine and create the things I want to create. And it's, a um, it's not virtual reality exactly, but that whole time I'm, you know, my whole field of view is occupied by, uh, by this monitor that's showing me a window into a three dimensional space. I'm rotating things around. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm imagining things, I'm making things. And so that is um you know pretty close to um
0: to to being in virtual reality. Does that thing have to exist for you to experience true joy? Can you stay in Fusion 360 the whole time? Do you have to 3D print it and touch it?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh that's my game. That's that's what I'm up to, but you know, it happens that um if you're building a virtual environment, if you're uh, making a game level or creating a virtual set for a film or a TV production, the thing that you're designing in the program may never physically exist. Uh, and in fact, it's preferable that it doesn't because you, the whole point of that is to um, is to to make imaginary things that uh, that you couldn't couldn't build otherwise. So I think lots of people spend a good chunk of their working hours in something that's pretty close to, to VR. It's just that currently the output device happens to be a rectangular object mm-hmm. in front of them. Uh, you could replace that with
0: uh, a VR headset, and they'd be doing the same stuff. There's all kinds of interfaces. For example, I enjoy listening to podcasts or audiobooks. But Let's say actually podcasts, because there's an uh, intimate human connection In a podcast, it's one way, but you get to learn about the person you're listening to, and that's a real connection. And that's just audio Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. That's just audio. True. And like for me, that that's just audio. As a fan of people, and you kind of a little bit are friends with those people.
2: Yeah, you know (laughs) they're
1: in
0: your life. You're listening to them. Yeah, and I mean, they're not. They're as far away from real. (laughs) as he gets there's not even a yeah there's not even a visual component it's just audio but they're as real like if i was on a desert island like my imagination like this thing works pretty good in terms of imagination like that it creates a very beautiful world with a with just audio so i I mean, or even just reading books just read, yeah <laughs> exactly reading books, yeah, even more so with reading books because uh there there's certain mediums which stimulate the imagination more mm-hmm. the yeah the when when you present less, the imagination works more mm-hmm. and that can create really enriching experiences so I mean t- to me, the question is can you do some of the th- amazing things that make life amazing? in virtual worlds? It seems to me the answer there is obviously yes. Even if I, like you, am attached to a lot of stuff in the physical world, I think I can very readily imagine coming up with some of the same magical experiences in the virtual world, where you make friends and you can fall in love, where the source of love in your life is uh, to a much greater degree inside of a virtual world and like and then love means fulfillment that means happiness that's the thing you look forward to and not some kind of dopamine rush type of love but like long <laughs> long lasting like yeah yeah friendship. real deal yeah
1: yeah it just depends on, on what is there in the way of of applications the content and can it feed you those things can it give you like in my example of, of using the CAD program, uh, it gives me the ability to do something I enjoy, uh, which is making, you know, imagining things and making things in a
0: particular way. But can, can we psychoanalyze you for a second? Sure. What exactly do you enjoy? Is there some component of you building the thing where you get to at least a little bit share with others? Like, is there a human in the loop outside of you in that picture? Will anyone ever see it? Right. The, my, yeah. Like, the, there's a source of your enjoyment because I would argue that perhaps it, when, like, the, 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 the turtles all the way down, when you get to the bottom turtle, it has to do with other sharing with other humans. Yeah. And if you can then put those humans inside the VR world then then you start to, then then you can, okay, for example, you could do it in the physical world, the the, the 3D printing, mm-hmm. but you share it in, in, in the virtual world, and that's where the source of happiness is.
2: I think,
1: at least speaking for myself, I'm always thinking in terms of an audience, and um, at some level, I feel like I'm I'm doing this for someone or communicating to someone, even if there's not a specific someone in mind. Yeah. It could just be an abstract, theoretical someone, um, and like another app, I spend a lot of time in is Mathematica. Okay, and if, yeah, when I do a ma- app, yeah. yeah, yeah, and when I do a Mathematica notebook, if I'm trying to figure something out, I spend a lot of time typing. Just my stuff is just huge blocks of of text, just me thinking out loud, and then some graphs and calculations and stuff. Um, because to me, um that act of of explaining things and commenting
0: um helps me understand what I'm doing. And there's kind of an audience, uh amorphous audience in yeah. mind.
1: Yeah, like I mean most of this stuff nobody will ever see, and yet I'm creating it as if there were an audience that might read this stuff. Because that I have to that's a, a necessary constraint that helps me um, do a better job.
0: What's the, uh, this might be a tricky question to answer. W- what uh, comes to mind as a particularly beautiful thing that you're proud of that you create inside Mathematica visualization-wise or uh, something that just comes to memory if, mm-hmm. if it's possible to retrieve? So mm.
1: the, the thing I've spent the most amount of time on is I got obsessed um, a long time ago was trying to tile the globe with hexagons. Yes. And um, or,
0: an actual globe.
1: Well, a, any spherical any spherical okay. object, yeah, yeah. But but with an eye towards uh, putting it on the Earth, and so uh, and have it be recursive. So you can have hexagons within hexagons, which is hard because and probably a bad idea because you can't tile a hexagon with smaller hexagons. They don't they stick out,
0: got it, so they're oh, they stick out, so there's a- can you do some kind of fractal hexagon situation
1: yeah, yeah, so <laughs> so it's that, and people who who know me um are always uh uh now now make fun of me for this, so they'll send me if they if they see a picture with hexagons in it, they'll like send me a link you know, to, <laughs> to 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 make fun of me. Um, so as some, some one people, of those
0: people, Roger Penrose or,
1: <laughs> I, I think he, Roger's a little above my, my level. Um, <laughs> well, he's, he's into uh, ex as well and yeah. tiling. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I did a lot of that and I thought, you know, it was pretty cool, but, um, if there's some like surprisingly intractable problems that keep coming up, like you, you've always got to have some pentagons. Like if you start with the icosahedron, which is equilateral triangles, which is a logical place to start, you can cover those with hexagons, but every vertex where, uh, where the, the triangles come together is a pentagon, has to be a pentagon. Oh, interesting. So it's all hexagons and then there's a pentagon at the intersections. Yeah,
0: yeah. Cool. How did you figure that out? Is that a known fact? well it's
1: just if you look at a yeah. like just by inspection, it's an obvious thing got it yeah, yeah. so so you you can't make that go away so any system that you come up with to do this has got to have this exceptions built into it for for those 12 you could have quintillions of of hexagons but uh, you still got to have 12 pentagons somewhere hmm. um so um so I've I've blown a hell of a lot of time on, on that over the years. By the way, a
0: lot of those k- kind of uh problems are very difficult to prove something about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It, the, yeah. And I think Uber did it because someone one of my friends who uh uh who, who knows of my my interest in this and who likes to to give me a hard time sent me a link. This is a couple of years ago to some code base that I think came out of Uber, where they had done this—you know, you break break down the whole surface of the Earth into into little hexagons. So um, that was a real knife through the heart. Um, but I'll probably come back to it someday.
0: Is there something special to, about hexagons, or are you interested in all kinds of tiling?
1: Uh well. Uh I'm interested in all kinds of tiling but i'm i not i know my limitations like as a as a math guy um so hexagons are about my speed <laughs> um you know yeah. just a sufficient amount of complexity yeah uh, yeah uh, so but no tiling is a really interesting problem, both two and three dimensional tiling problems are fascinating and they're one of those ancient puzzles that has um uh attracted brainiacs for for centuries
0: Uh, let me ask you a little bit about ai okay Uh, what are some likely interesting trajectories for the proliferation of ai in society over the next couple of decades do you think about this kind of stuff
1: i do not think about it a lot because it's a deep topic and I'm not, I don't consider myself super well-informed about it. And AI seems to be a term that is applied to a lot of different things. So I've messed around just a tiny little bit with, with neural nets with uh, what's it called? PCA principal component analysis. So I, I guess I tend to think in terms of sort of granular bottom up, um, Ideas rather than big picture, top down. You know. Oh,
0: got like. it. So, like, very specific algorithms. Like, how are they going to? What problem are they, are they going to solve in society such that that has like a lot of big ripple effects? See, I, I mean, we could talk a, a particular successful AI systems and success defined in different ways of recent years. So, one is language models with GPT three. Uh, Most importantly, they're self-supervised, meaning they don't require much supervision from humans, which means they can learn by just reading a huge amount of content created by humans. So read the internet and from that be able to generate text and do all kinds of things like that. Mm -hmm. It's possible they have a big enough neural network, it's going to be able to have conversations with humans based on just reading human language. That's an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. To me, the very interesting idea that people don't think about it as AI because they're kind of dumb currently is actual embodied robots. So robotics, like Mm -hmm. Boston Dynamics, I have downstairs and upstairs, uh, legged robots. Uh, You know, uh, the currently Boston Dynamics robots and most legged robots, most robots period are pretty dumb. So most of the challenges have to do with the actual first of all the engineering of making the thing work mm-hmm. getting a, a sensor suite that allows you to do it's the same thing as with magic leap that yeah. base layer of like
2: where is
1: it
0: stuff where, where am i yeah and uh what what am i looking at <laughs> yeah i don't need to deeply understand uh my surroundings at a level of like like uh at a level beyond of what will hurt if I run into it. Yeah. 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 But even that is hard. That's that's hard, but the thing that I think people don't uh in, in the robotic space explore enough is the human robot interaction part of the of the picture, which is how it makes humans feel. How robots make humans mm-hmm. feel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to have a very significant impact in uh in the near future in society, which is the more you integrate AI systems of whatever form into society where humans are uh, in contact with them regularly. So that could be embodied robotics or that could be social media algorithms. I think that has a very significant impact. And people often think like AI needs to be super smart to have an impact. I think it needs to be super integrated with society to have an impact and more and more that's happening even if they're dumb.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, the, um, I mean, a a lot of my exposure to robots is, is that, uh, I'm, uh, associated with a, a combat robotics team and I've been to a few battle bots competitions and that's not like in a lot of ways, that's pretty far from the kind of robotics you're talking about, um, because the, these robots are remote controlled. They're they're not autonomous, um, and so um, they're they're pretty simple. But um, it's interesting to watch people's emotional reactions to different robots. So there was one that was in the last year's season, the 2020 season, called Rusty, that uh, was just a like put together out of spare parts and it looked kind of cute Mm -hmm. and it became this huge crowd favorite because you could see it was made of like salad bowls and, you know, random pieces of hardware that this guy had like scavenged from his farm. And so immediately people kind of fell in love with this one particular robot, whereas they might, uh, other robots might be like the bad guy in a, uh, you know, if you think of professional wrestling, you know, the heel and the baby face so people do for reasons that are hard to understand form these emotional
0: reactions we form narratives in the same way we do when we meet human beings we tell stories about these objects and they can be intelligent and they can be biological or they can be uh, in almost almost close to inanimate objects yeah and that to me is kind of fascinating and um if robots choose to lean into that Oh. it creates an interesting world.
1: If they start uh using feedback
0: loops to make themselves cuter? Not just cuter, but everything that humans do. Let's not yeah. let's 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 not speak harshly of robots. Humans do the same thing. Oh no, thing. I didn't
1: did was wasn't meaning it in a but you're right. Humans based on feedback Will change their appearance. Yes. Their I do this on
0: Instagram all the time. Yeah. How do I look cuter? That's the fundamental right. question I yeah. ask myself. Yeah. So why morning. wouldn't
1: why wouldn't a robot wanna it's like, oh wow, people people really don't like the, you know, quad mount machine gun, you know, on top of my <laughs> turret. Maybe I should get rid of that and that would, you know, people would feel more at ease. Uh
0: or or lean into it, be yeah. proud of it. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, you won't take my gun, whatever the saying is, yeah. <laughs> from my uh, dead cold hands. Um, I mean, their personality, adding personality such that you can start to heal, you can start to weave narratives. I think that's a fascinating place where it, there's this feedback loop, like you said, where AI, when it's especially when it's embodied, Puts a mirror to ourselves, just like other humans, our our close friends. They kind of teach us about ourselves. We teach each other, and through that process, grow close. And it, to me, it's so fascinating to um, to expand the space of deep, meaningful interactions beyond just humans. Hmm. That uh, th- that's the opportunity I see with uh, with robots and with AI systems. And that's why I don't like, my biggest problem with social media algorithms is the lack of transparency. It's mm-hmm. not the existence of the algorithms. It's, uh, well, there's, there's many things. One is the data. Data should be controlled by the individ- by people yeah. themselves. So, uh, but also the lack of transparency in how the algorithms work. And change your perception of what's real. Yeah, in, yes. in hidden ways, yeah. In hidden ways, yeah. Like you should be aware, just like when you take—I don't know—if if you take psychedelics, you should be aware that you took the psychedelics. <laughs> it shouldn't be a surprise, yeah. And second, you should—I mean—become uh, a student and a scholar, and there should be research done. There should be open conversation about how your perception is changed, and you—and then you are become your own guide in this world of altered perception, because. Arguably none of it is real. You get to choose the flavor of real. Um, I mean, this is something you explore uh, quite a bit. Do you um, yourself think that there is a bottom to it where there is reality? There's a base layer of reality that physics can explore and our human perception sort of layer stuff is there is there let's go to plato is there such a thing as truth
1: i lean towards the platonic view of things Uh, so i I believe that mathematical objects haven't a reality that it's it's not all made up by by human minds um and uh, i don't know where that reality comes from i can't explain it but but i do think that mathematical objects are discovered and not uh, invented um, the <clears throat> um, I I I did a lot of or uh, not a lot, but I did some some reading of Husserl uh, when I was re- writing Anathem, um, and he's a you know twentieth century phenomenologist, and he's writing in the he's writing at the same time as as scientists are starting to understand atoms. And and becoming aware that um, that when we look at this table, it's really just a a slab of almost entirely vacuum. And there's a very sparse uh, arrangement of tiny, tiny little particles there um, occupying that space that interact with each other in such a way that uh, our brains perceive this object. Um, So, that's kind of kind of the beginnings of phenomenology, um, and um, and his stuff is pretty hard to um, hard to read. Uh, it you really have to take it in small bites um, and go a little bit at a time. Uh, but he's trying to
0: come to grips with these with these kinds of of questions. How did you come to grips with it? Like why why is this table feel solid
1: well i mean we're an evolved system that there's we have biological advantages in in knowing where solid objects are so we've got this system in our head that um that integrates our perceptions into this coherent view of things um the one of the take-homes that i i like from husserl is the idea of intersubjectivity and the idea that a fundamental requirement for us to stay sane is for us to share our perceptions and have them ratified by other, they don't even have to be people, but um, that, you know, a a prisoner in solitary confinement might um, domesticate a mouse or even insects uh, because they perceive the same things that the prisoner perceives. Um, And, uh, and so, convince convince him that he's not just hallucinating
0: yeah there's a the <laughs> establish a consensus over yep. the, <laughs> yeah, but see that doesn't mean it's any of it is real, you just establish a consensus it uh it could be very um yeah it could very distant from something that um <sighs> something that's real in in um engineering sense of real like the, you could build it. Using physics.
1: but I think that uh, you know a valuable application for an AI robot would be just to do nothing except that. It just, um, so... Um, Consensus. It just exactly. sits there. Yeah. And if, if you hear a door slam, you might turn to, to see what it is. If the robot, at the same time, turns to, to look at the door slam, it's ratifying your perception.
0: But isn't that the basis of love? is when the door slams you both look but for deeper things you both hear the same music and others don't i mean isn't that what i mean yeah that's by by love i mean depth of human connection yeah like it, it, that, that's or yeah, not yeah, you not you, necessarily you arrive
1: at similar reactions uh without having to to
0: explicitly communicate it yeah yeah but sure. we could start with a uh, a robot that listens explicitly for the, the, the slam doors. <laughs> yeah,
1: but no, I've I've or uh, scary sounds. I I can think of so a, a, an example of this is you know, uh, when I when I went to college, you know, we'd be sitting at the cafeteria, up uh, you know, a bunch of people, you know, eating our dinner together that uh, we had just met. Let's say, yeah, so. You know, um, so um, a bunch of new people in your life, and um and someone might make a a funny remark or a, a not so funny remark or um, something would happen. and you might then at that moment make eye contact with someone you didn't know at the other end of the table. And in that moment, you would realize this person is reacting. This person heard what I heard. They're reacting. The way i reacted yeah nobody else appears to get the joke or to, to understand what just happened but random stranger down there and i we have this connection yeah and then you, you build on that so then the next time something happens you automatically look at your new friend and they look back at you and and before you know it you know you're you're hanging out together yeah because you you know you've already established without even talking to each other that uh, you're on the same wavelength. Yeah.
0: It's seemingly so simple, but so powerful. It's establishing that you're on the same wavelength. Yeah. At some level. Yeah. There's no reason why you and a toaster can't have that. <laughs> I'm just saying. No. Uh, <laughs> Does this smell burned to you?
1: <laughs>
0: exactly. I if, think it's burn. If a toaster could just say that to you. Yeah, yeah. Cryptonomicon, published in 1999 set in the late 90s and involves hackers who build essentially cryptocurrency. Bitcoin white paper came out in 2008. So I have to kind of ask, uh, from you looking at this layout of what's been happening in cryptocurrency, uh, the evolution of this technology, how has it rolled out differently than you could have imagined in two ways one the technology itself and two the human side of things the human stories of the hackers and the financial folks and the powerful and the powerless the human side of things
1: yeah well cryptonomicon is pre bitcoin it's pre satoshi it's pre-blockchain as you point out so um at that point uh, i was kind of reacting to what i was seeing among people like the bay area cypherpunks in berkeley there was some, some there was a branch here in austin as well um, and a lot of their thinking was so sort of based on the idea that you would have to have a physical uh region of the earth that was free of government interference you you couldn't achieve that freedom by purely mathematical means on the network. You actually had to have, you know, a room somewhere with servers in it um, that uh, that a government couldn't come and and meddle with. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of ideation happened around that view of things. That there were efforts to figure out jurisdictions where this might work. There was uh, a lot of interest for a while in Anguilla which is a Caribbean island that had some unusual jurisdictional properties. Um, there was sea land, <coughs> sea land, which is a, a platform in the North sea. Um, and so there was a lot of effort that went into finding these physical locations that, that were deemed kind of safe. Um, and that all goes away with blockchain. It's no longer necessary. Um, and so that really changes the picture in a lot of ways because um, uh, you no longer have, I mean, from a novelist point of view, the old system was a lot more fun to work with because it gives you a situation where hackers are wandering around in strange parts of the world, mm-hmm. you know, trying to set up server rooms. So that's a great storytelling
2: thing.
0: There's well, still a little bit of that, right, in, in the modern world, but it's just, there's several server rooms as opposed to one centralized one
2: yeah yeah
1: and there is the like the new wrinkle is the need to do a lot of computation and to keep your your uh, your your gpus from melting down so people building things in iceland or or in shipping containers on
0: the bottom of the ocean or whatever um so, um, but there's still governments involved, and there's, there's still, from a novelist perspective, interesting dynamics. Mm-hmm. What is big governments like uh, China and, and more sort of renegade governments from all over the world trying to contend with this idea of what to do uh, in terms of control and power over these kinds of centers that do the mining of the, yeah. Of the cryptocurrency?
1: Yeah. So, we're in a stage now that kind of goes beyond the initial like there's the stuff i was describing in cryptonomicon had a little bit of a air about it of the underpants gnomes uh in that you know we're going to we're going to build this system and then we'll make money somehow uh but mm-hmm. the the intermediate step was was left out um and that is uh uh i i think we're now so sort of, into that phase of the thing where the where bitcoin you know blockchain exists people know how it works uh bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies exist people are using them and it's sort of like okay what now you know where does this all lead um so um
0: do you have a sense of where it all leads like is it is it possible that the set of technology kind of continues to have Uh, transformational effects on not just sort of finance, but who gets to have power in this world? So the decentralization of power.
1: You know, big questions, right? So I guess uh, there's a little bit of the cynic in me thinking that as soon as it becomes important enough, the existing banks and people in power are going to sort of control it. I guess an easy answer is that maybe it won't be a, a big change in the end um there's a, a utopian strain sometimes in in the way people think about this that i'm not
0: so sure about maybe there there's a there is a technological aspect to to bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that make it a little easier to uh, pull along the the utopian thread yeah because it's harder for governments to control bitcoin yeah i mean they they have much fewer options the, the they can ban they can make it illegal it's di- it's more difficult yeah and so technology here is on the side of the powerless the voiceless which is a very interesting idea of course yes it, it does have a utopian feel to it but we have been making progress throughout human history yeah and maybe this is what progress looks like there will be the powerful and the greedy and the bureaucrats that take advantage of it, skim off the top kind of thing. But maybe this does give um, more power to people that haven't had power before in a good way, like distributing power and enabling sort of more um, greater resistance to sort of uh, dictatorships and authoritarian regimes, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And also enabling all kinds of technologies is built built on top of it ultimately, when you digitize money uh you know money is a kind of speech or it's, it's it's a kind of like um mechanism of how humans interact, and if you make that digital more and more of the world moves to the digital space and then you could have the you, then you can finally fully live in that virtual reality with the toaster and then <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah in a lot of ways, I think in that realm of technology that the money per se is one of the less interesting things you can do with it. so I think you know cryptographically enforceable contracts and um and organizations built on those that seems to me like it's got more potential for change just because we do already have money, and although it's an old system, um, it's been digitized to a large extent by. You know the the stripes and the credit card companies of the world,
0: and I also love the idea of like uh, connecting so two, connected to two two smart contracts, connecting data, sort of uh, making it more formal, it's like Mathematica, more structured. The integration of data of weather data of uh, all kinds of data about the 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 stuff in the world so they can make contracts between people that in that's grounded in data and that's actually getting closer to something like truth because then you can make agreements based on actual data versus kind of perceptions of data and if you can formalize like distribute the power of who gets to tell the story yeah that that's an interesting kind of um resistance yeah again uh the well, powerful in the space of narrative.
1: Yeah, David Brin has been saying for a while that um, the only way to settle arguments with, you know, across the political divide, is to to make bets. So people can say, you know, the election was stolen, or you know, wh- whatever controversial position they're they're taking, um, and it, they'll keep saying it until you you uh you, you wager real money on it mm-hmm. um so um so maybe there's something there um if you could uh kind of turn that into a put a user interface on that thing <laughs> you know
0: um, yeah have a stake in your uh in, in your divisiveness in your in yeah. your arguments right, right. No. will uh dogecoin take over the world twitter <laughs> question you
1: know i don't I don't follow the the different coins that much. So I don't, I I mean, I hear about Dogecoin and I, you know, I've kind of followed the story of it. So the
0: interesting aspect of Dogecoin is it, so in contrast to like uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are these serious implementations of cryptocurrency that seek to solve some of the problems that we're talking about with smart contracts and and, uh, resist the. the the banks and all those kinds of things. Dogecoin operates more in the space of memes and humor while still doing some of the similar things. And it presents to the world sort of a question of whether um, memes, whether humor, whether narrative will go a long way in the future. Like, much farther than some kind of boring old uh, grounded technologies, whether we'll be playing in the space of fun. Hmm. Like once we built a base of comfort and stability and like a robust system where everyone has shelter, everyone has uh, food and the basic needs covered, are we going to then operate in the space of fun? that's that's why I think about dogecoin because it seems like fun spreads faster than anything else, fun of different kinds and that could be bad fun and it could be good fun yeah and so it's a, it's a battle of of good it, it fun go, it goes so bad
1: viral fun. very very quickly when you when you, if you if you post something that people find fun to
0: yeah, and that's okay. what Dogecoin represents, so there's like so Bitcoin represents like financial uh, like serious financial instruments. And then Dorskoy represents fun. Hmm. And it's interesting to watch the battle go on on the internet to see which wins. This is also like an open question to me of what is the internet? Because um, fun seems to prevail on the internet. And is that a fundamental property of the internet moving forward when you look 100 years out? Or is this a temporary thing that was true at the birth of the internet, and it's just true for a couple of decades until it fades away, and and the adults take over and become serious again.
1: Well, I think the adults took over initially, and then it was later on that people started using it for fun, frivolous things like memes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, that's pretty much unstoppable. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, because um, even people who are very serious, uh, you know, enjoy. Um, Sending around a funny picture or uh, something that amuses them.
0: Yeah, I I personally think we spoke about World War II. I think memes will save the world and prevent all future wars. You've been handwriting your work for the past twenty years mm-hmm. since writing the Baroque cycle. What are the pros and cons of handwriting versus typing?
1: For me, I started it as an experiment when I started the Baroque cycle because. I had noticed that if I sometimes if I was stuck having a hard time getting started, if I just picked up a pen and started writing, it was easy to to go. So I just decided to keep with that. If it got in my way, I didn't like it, I could always just go back to the word processor. and would be fine. So but I never that never happened. So there's a certain security that comes from knowing that it's ink on paper and there's no uh operating system crash or software failure that can obliterate it. Um, there's, um, um, I, it's a slower output technique. And so um, a, a sentence or a paragraph spends a longer time in the buffer up here before it gets committed to paper, whereas I can type really fast. And so I can slam things out before I really thought them through. So I think the first draft quality ends up being higher. Um, and then editing first draft of editing is just faster because, um, instead of like trying to move the cursor around or whatever, uh, or, you know, hitting the backspace key, I can just draw a line through a word or a sentence or just around a whole paragraph and exit out. Um, and in doing so, I very quickly created an edit, but I've also left behind a record of what the text was prior to the edit.
0: Of course, you know, all the digital versions have those quote unquote features, but their experience is different. Yeah, yeah. Is there a romance to just the physical, you know, the touch of the pen to the paper? doing think, what has been done for centuries.
4: I
1: think there is. I think there's a, uh, just the simplicity of it and not having any intermediary technology beyond the the pen and the paper, uh, is just very simple and clean. Um, <clears throat> and, um, um, so I've got a bunch of fountain pens. And I, I, I started buying fancy paper from Italy a few years ago because, uh, I I thought I would be more conservative with it, you know. But it still doesn't. It it's still a a trivial
0: expenditure, so it doesn't really
1: alter my my habits very much. Uh,
0: So all that said, you once you do type stuff up, you you use Emacs. Yeah, I use Emacs. Obviously, the superior editor. Of course. You uh, let me just ask the ridiculous futuristic question because Emacs has been around forever. Mm-hmm. Do you think in one hundred years we will still have Emacs and Vim? Or like, pick a, pick a let's say fifty hundred years? Yeah, yeah, years.
1: yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, whenever you're doing anything in
0: Linux,
2: you
1: you're spending a lot of time editing little config files and scripts and stuff and uh you need to be able to pop in and out of of editing those things and it needs to work like even if the the windowing gui is dead and all you've got is like a command line you, you to get out of that problem you might need to to enter an editor and uh and alter a file so i think on that level there will always have to be sort of uh very simple well emacs isn't very simple but you know, you know what i mean there there have to be basic editors that you can use um, from either the command line or a gui um, just for administering systems now how widespread they'll be um you know there's a certain amount of um what's the story of the the there's the the american folk tale of the 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 guy who the hammer guy who drives the railroad spikes John Henry mm-hmm. trying to keep up with the steam hammer and eventually the the steam hammer wins because he can't drive the spikes fast enough so there's there's a sense in which you know Microsoft like who knows how much they've invested in code you know Visual Studio to to you know or or Apple with Xcode so they've put huge amounts of money into, um, enhancing their IDEs and Emacs in theory can duplicate all of those features, um, by, you know, if you just have enough Linux hackers writing Emacs Lisp macros. Um, but you know, at, at some point, um, it's going to be hard to, to maintain that level of, uh, of uh, to 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 keep up feature for feature
0: the the, the interesting thing about Emacs just is lasted a long time yeah and i I think you've you talked about that the, there's a certain like there's certain fads uh certainly in the in the um software engineering space and it's interesting to think about technologies that sort of last for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And just kind of being in the, what is it? How do they get by? It's like the the uh, the cockroaches of software or yeah. the, the bacteria of software or something. They Like this base thing that nobody, everybody's just became reliant on uh, and they just outlast everything else and slowly, slowly adjust with the times with a little bit of a delay, with a little bit of customization by individuals kind mm-hmm. of that but they're always there in the shadows yep. and they outlast everybody else and i wonder if that's that that might be the story for a lot of technologies especially in the software space you know shell scripts you know all that
1: stuff you 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 can't run the modern world without a, a bunch of shell scripts you know booting up machines and 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 running things so um it's uh, that is going to be a hard thing to to replace, and then tech for typesetting that you use, you said for when i when I want to print it out, yeah, I just have uh, some simple uh macros that I use, but then I have to um the the publisher put their foot down and they they want it in in word format now. so um, years ago, I wrote some macros to convert, and this time, what did I do? Copy paste? No, I um I use sort of uh, regular expressions. So I was to do italics in, uh, ah. you know, you you put it in curly brackets and you do backslash it, mm. and then you type what you want to type, and that's how you get italics in tech. So you can create a regular expression that'll look for some text between curly brackets preceded by backslash it, yeah. and then uh, instead. Uh, convert that to italics and word will do that um word if you go deep enough into its search and replace ui you can do regular expressions is is just reg ups <laughs>
0: yeah uh, it's funny that you did that yeah i mean i'm sure there's tools that help you with that kind of thing but but the, the task is sufficiently simple to where you can do a much better job than one anybody else's tool can yeah yeah so that's a fascinating process (laughs)
1: works fine for me yeah um
0: and it keeps you from messing around with formatting
1: yeah like oh what if i put this chapter heading you know in you know a sans serif font Yeah, it's a it's just classic wanking um and so you the, the those options are closed off in what i'm doing
0: is there advice you could say what does it take to write a great story The
1: power of
0: of good yarns, good
1: narratives to um, pull people in is is, uh, incredible. And I think my sort of amateur theory is that it's an evolutionary development. That if you're, um, you know, uh, a cave person sitting around a fire in the Rift Valley a million years ago... um, If you can tell the story of how you escaped from the hyenas um, or how Uncle Bob, you know, didn't escape from the hyenas. And if, if the people listening to you can take that in and they can build that scenario in their heads like a kind of virtual reality and see what you're describing, then you've just conferred an incredibly important advantage on the people who've heard that story. Yeah. Right. And so they know a bunch of stuff now about how to stay alive that they could not have learned in any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, animals who don't have speech, though, they might warn each other. They might make a sound that says danger, danger. Um, but uh, but it, it, as far as we know, they can't tell more complicated stories. Uh,
0: so it's a part of us. Yeah. I. The, <sighs> The, the the collective intelligence seems to be one of the the key characteristics of the of Homo sapiens, the ability to share ideas and hold ideas together in our minds, and storytelling is the fundamental aspect of that. Maybe even language itself is more fundamental. Yeah, because the language is required to do the storytelling, or maybe they evolve together.
2: Maybe they co-evolve.
0: Yeah,
1: so I think that you've got to work with that, and I think. Uh, Sometimes it seems like in kind of uh, literary circles that having a lot of plot is a little bit frowned upon as it's pulpy or it's exploitative. But um, for me, I don't have any compunctions whatsoever about that. I like stories that um, are grabby and fun and exciting to read. And once you've got one of those going, once you've got a good yarn going, that people will enjoy reading, then you're free to do whatever you want uh, in the frame of that story. Uh, but if you don't have that,
0: um, then you got nothing. What about having like, which uh, you do a, a technological, scientific rigor, like to the to the accuracy and as much as possible? How does that add to the to to Bob telling the story or telling the story about Bob around the campfire? Well, the
1: main thing that it does is. Um present um, little details that you might not have come up with on your own. So if you're just sitting there freely imagining things, um, you, uh, you your your brain probably isn't going to serve up the wealth of details and the resulting complications and surprises that real that the real world is constantly presenting us with. And so, um in my case, if i'm um trying to write a story about you know some that involves some technology like a a rocket or uh, orbital maneuvers or whatever, then delving into those details eventually is gonna turn up some weird unexpected you know thing that uh gives me material to work with, but also subliminally readers who see that are are gonna be drawn in more. Uh, because it's, they're going to uh, to to find that um, oh I didn't see that coming you know you know it's got some of the complexity and surprise value of the real world.
0: Yeah, it does something. Um, uh, Alex Garland, director who did uh, who wrote uh, directed Ex Machina. I, I think about AI movies, and the more care you take in making it accurate. The more compelling the story becomes, somehow. I'm not. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, maybe because it becomes more real to the people writing the story. Maybe it just makes you a better writer.
1: The key to any storytelling is getting the the readers to suspend their their disbelief. And there's all kinds of triggers and little tells that can break that. Right. Um, and once it's broken, it's really hard to to get it back. Uh, You know, a lot of times that's the end. Somebody will just close the book and not pick it up.
0: Um, I got to ask you, you've answered this question, but I got to ask you the most impossible question for an author to answer, but which Neil Stevenson book should one read first? So when people ask me that, I I usually ask them what
1: they like to read, right? Because, I mean, there's... The best known one is probably Snow Crash, but that's a a cyberpunk novel that's at the same time making fun of cyberpunk. Um so it's kind of got some layers to it that uh might not seem so funny if you don't have that if you don't get the joke, right? So um there's uh I've written as you point out, I've written historical novels. Some people like those. Some people prefer those. So if that's what you like, then Cryptonomicon or the Baroque cycle is where you would start. If you like sort of techno thrillers that are set in a modern day setting but aren't science fiction-y per se, then uh Reamde, um, is one of those, and Termination Shock um is 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 definitely one of those. Um so it just depends on on
0: uh what people like. What what uh? When people a long time ago recommend I read Snow Crash, they said uh, it's the, uh, it's Neil Stevenson light. Hmm. It's it's the uh, like if you don't want to be overwhelmed by the depth, like the rigor uh-huh. of a book, like that's a good that's a good introduction yeah. to the man. Okay. Band. Okay. So so essentially you broke it down by topics, but. If you wanted to read all of them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what's a good introduction to the to the man? Because obviously these worlds are very different. Yeah. The philosophies are very different. Yeah. What, what's a good introduction to the human?
1: Um hmm.
0: people ask the same thing of Dostoevsky. People are, <laughs> it's a it's a hard one to answer. Maybe seven Eves. Because it's got big themes.
1: Um it's, you know, it's about heavy heavy things happening to the human race. Um, uh, But hopefully the story is told through a cast of characters that uh, people can relate to, you know, and it moves along. Uh, So uh, it it does go kind of deep eventually on how rockets work and orbital mechanics and all that stuff, but um, people were able to get through it anyway, or some people just skip over that. It's fine, you know. Um,
0: as an author, let me ask you, what books had a big impact on your life that you've read? Is there any that jumped to mind that uh, you learned from as a writer, as a philosopher, as a mathematician, as an engineer? Mm-hmm. This is one of these questions
1: where I always blank out, and then when I'm walking out the door, I'll, <laughs> I'll remember 12 of So them. this
0: is a random selection mm-hmm. that doesn't represent the top? The top
1: ones, Um, well, I mentioned, you know, Gulag Archipelago that's
0: kind of a hefty and dark, but. And then it has a personal connection as well. Yeah. Just, yeah. It's like where you found the book too. Right. The part, the time in your life, where you found it, who recommended it, that's also part of the story. Yeah. So there's definitely that.
1: There's, you know, I, I circle back to Moby Dick a lot, um, because we read it in a, uh, a really great. English class I had in high school, and I came in with an oppositional stance because I thought that the teacher was going to try to talk me into having all kinds of highfalutin ideas about allegory and what does this mean and what's the symbolism. And it turned out that uh, it turned out to be a lot more interesting and satisfying than that. Um, What was the
0: first powerful book you remember reading that like convince you that this form could have depth?
1: Hmm.
0: Was it Moby Dick? Was it like in high school?
1: I'm trying to remember. Well, Moby Dick was definitely a big one. Um, I mean, I used to read a lot of classics comics when I was, I don't know if you've seen these. It's a whole series of comic books that um, uh, it was viral. You could, uh, in the in the back of each comic book was an order form you could check some boxes and fill out your address and mail it in <clears throat> and more would show up. And, but it was like, they would do the count of Monte Cristo, you know, Moby Dick, <laughs> you know, Robert Louis Stevenson, R- Robinson Crusoe, you know, all this sort of classic books, uh, were, they had put into comic book form. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. Reading Moby Dick, if you're nine years old is a, tall order. They, there's some very complicated sentences in there. Yeah. Um, and a lot of digressions. But if you're just looking at the comic book, it's like, holy shit, look at that whale, you know. Um,
0: and um, and ultimately, the power of the story yeah. doesn't need the complicated words. It, 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 it's it's all about the man and the and, and the whale. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you could get kind of a grounding in a lot of classic works of literature without actually reading them, which is, you know, it's great when you're nine years old. So, so I read a lot of that stuff uh, for sure. The annotated Sherlock Holmes.
0: Um, mm. You you mentioned David Deutsch too, as an inspiration for some of your work. I mean, you've you've obviously done like really a lot of research for the books you, you, you do. Roger Penrose. What uh, do you remember? A book that made you want to become a writer, or a moment that made you become? I be- think.
1: Like the, you know, the answer I usually give is that when I was in like fifth grade, one of my friends came to school one day. He was wearing leather shoes, like dress shoes. And I hated dress shoes because mine never fit. And so they were uncomfortable. I couldn't run. You know, they were cold. It was Iowa. (laughs) So I kind of said, I remember very clearly thinking, okay, I don't like where this is going. Like, does this mean that next year all of the kids are going to be wearing leather shoes? <clears throat> so I, I need to find a job where I don't have to do that. So that was like the first time I thought about trying to find such a job, you know, being a writer. And then, and then I just read a lot of... uh just classic science fiction short stories, and started you know trying to write some of my own and uh they were just classic young adult stories like by Heinlein and um the other classic names that you think of, but the Heinlein ones stuck have stuck with me in a way that the others didn't
0: what's the greatest science fiction book ever written just removing your uh work from consideration? uh greatest <laughs> i'm lo- i'm loving torturing you right greatest
1: now greatest ever non-stevenson do we include fantasy or does it have to be science fiction
0: oh interesting fantasy hmm i, I did not expect that twist uh
1: well in, for in a weird way they're lumped together in people's yeah. minds right so
0: they are but it, they're there but there's also a boundary somehow I'm no, not sure what that is, exactly.
1: Nobody is. It's a mystery. Um, <laughs> so I mean, if we do include it, then it's easily the the Lord of the Rings. Mm. Um, but uh, I mean, greatness is a interesting quality to uh, to try to define. Um, and for me, uh, a lot of the the fun and the joy of of such books is is not in what you'd call greatness, but just storytelling. So I was always a big fan of has, Have space Suit Will Travel, which is a Heinlein young adult
0: book. It's just, uh, it's just a fun, good read. Um, yeah. so. So, so fun is a big component. Greatness is overrated.
1: Well, I don't know if it's overrated, but it's just, you know, it's, it might be underdefined.
2: Let's
0: put it that way. <laughs> so. Have Spacesuit Will Travel. Now I definitely have to read that one. Yeah. You mentioned Iowa. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, there a couple of times I got to spend, uh, quite a bit of time with Dan Gable, with Tom Brands, who are wrestlers. Was, uh, is it now wrestling, martial arts, part of your life, or any part of your form, formation of who you are as a human being?
1: I think so in a, it, it was a late, it was a late thing for me, but growing up in Ames, <clears throat> um, Dan Gable was uh, a few years older than me, and so sometimes we would go to the arena at the university and watch wrestling meets. And uh, and this was before his Olympic career. So everyone knew he was the star of that team and that he was the best, but people
0: didn't yet know that he was
1: the greatest of all time.
0: So you, you saw Gable. So that was part... It's, it's funny. It's, uh, it feel, feels like a small world that you would... Be in the same space as Dan Gable, like Well, these from two. 100 feet away, a
1: little dot on the mat, <laughs> trouncing his opponents. Him and him and Chris Taylor. So the other star was this four hundred pound plus guy named Chris Taylor, who uh, also went to the Olympics. So yeah, people, you know, he was he was a known he was a, a, a athletic hero, and wrestling is there's certain states like Oklahoma. Pennsylvania Iowa, where wrestling is the sport because those are states of small towns and so if you're a small town if you're like Dan Gable uh, and you have to be on a football team with 20 other guys who are not Dan Gable, then no matter how good you are, your team might might suck
4: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but if in a solo thing you can you can go to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot of wrestling in our gym classes in school, and I didn't like it and I think partly it's just that it was so so competitive and the people who were who cared about it really cared about it <laughs> a lot you know and so <clears throat> it was it was pretty tough. And I didn't think I had the right body type but then when i was uh after college, I was in Iowa City for a few years when he was coaching the the, the wrestling team there and the, he won like nine championships out of 10 years you know during that during that time so he was both the greatest individual wrestler of all time and like the greatest team coach um so i've never met him but we've uh, he's kind of been like in my sphere of awareness since i was you know kind of my whole life and people would always tell stories about him like i think he got arrested once for some kind of i don't know minor offense in mm-hmm. ames and so he just basically stayed up all night he was in this cage in the jail he just stayed up all night doing pull-ups yeah on, you know. sounds about right
0: yeah
1: and uh uh so yeah
0: but so has that been i mean Iowa was such an interesting place in the world I mean, wrestling is just part of that story i does is that somewhere in there does that resonate deeply with who you are? It was a formative, yeah, thing for me growing up there, for
1: sure. It's just a, uh, you know, a, a, a or at least used to be a very orderly place, high social capital, very minimal class differences. So, like, you'd have some people who would drive a Cadillac instead of a Chevy, but uh, that was it. That was, you know, those were the rich people, right? So. Um, and a college town is always a different environment like, uh, you know, Austin, uh, has some of this. Um, so it was a pretty kind of utopian, uh, other than the weather and a few other things, uh, environment to, to grow up in the, the martial art I ended up doing is sword stuff, which is interesting because it uses a different feedback loop. So when you're, if you're grappling, everything is through sense of touch Mm -hmm. and your sense of touch is very old and simple right right? like earthworms don't have don't even have eyes but they can tell when they're being touched right so it's very fast um and uh with um with a standoff art like boxing or some kinds of sword fighting you're you're not touching the other person most of the time you're your your visual system is doing something way more. It's doing slam mm-hmm. uh, and trying to figure out what the other person is up to. And so um, that always felt more my speed. So in, in Olympic-style fencing, you're, it doesn't start really until you're crossing blades with the other person, and now you're back to wrestling. You're feeling yeah. what they're doing and it's all about that but some of the older sword arts um don't engage the the blade that way you stand off at range and then you make cutting attacks and um and uh and so so those are all processed visually and i i think i'm more of a slow thinker so it works for me better
0: I mean, the same, so it has the same, so the artistry and the beauty of boxing, I suppose, just like you said, is like there's no, there's no contact and it's all processed visually and I'm sure there's a dance of its own. Yeah. Uh, that that depends on the characteristic of a sword involved. Yeah.
1: There's a set of, of stances and, and uh, basic reactions that you try to learn that are thought to be defensible um, and, and safe or safer and so it tends to be a series of short engagements where you'll you'll close in you'll try out your your idea and it works or it doesn't and then you you back off again uh,
0: it's interesting to think about like human history cuz martial arts okay that's a thing but in terms of sword fighting just the full Range of humans that existed who mastered sword fighting or sought the mastery of sword fighting. Just imagine the thousands of people who the, the heights they have achieved because the stakes are so incredibly high. Yeah,
2: to be good,
1: and it's the richest, most powerful people in, in those societies spending it, whatever it takes
2: to get the best
1: gear and the best training. Because you're right, everything depends on it,
0: and it's still life and death. I mean, that that's fascinating. Uh, that that's fascinating. We perhaps have lost that forever with greater weapons. I mean, the artistry of sword fighting when it's life and death, and you go into war. You have the Miyamoto Musashis of the world, right? The I don't know. There's a, there's a poetry to the, that that there's a mastery to that that I don't know if we could achieve with any other kind of martial art.
1: Well, the, one of the good, you were talking earlier about the, the, the good effects of the internet, social media that we sometimes overlook. And, and one of those is that um, there were all these isolated people around the world Mm -hmm. who were interested in this, who found each other and kind of created a network of of people who help each other learn these things. So, that doesn't mean that anyone is is up to the level of that you're talking about yet. But um but it is happening and um and so um there's a a a large number of old treatises, old written documents uh that have been dug up from libraries and and people have been going over these and translating them from old dialects of Italian and German. Um, to make sense of them and, and uh, learning how to, to do these techniques with different uh, different weapons. Um, actually, yeah, yeah. there's a guy here in Austin named Damon Stith who yeah. does African historical African martial arts, um, also martial arts of uh, of enslaved Africans who w- would learn machete fighting techniques in the Caribbean, South cool. America. Yeah. He's probably within a mile of us. He's That's an awesome. Amazing guy.
0: I'm I'm gonna look him up. Yeah. Can I ask you for advice? Can you give advice for young people? High school, college, you know, undergrads, thinking about uh their career, thinking about life, how to live a life they can be proud of. You think quite a bit about like what it's required to be innovative in this world. You think quite a bit about the future. So, if somebody wanted to be a person that makes a big impact in the future, what advice would you give them? I think
1: a big part of it is finding the thing that you will do happily, and uh, I don't want to say obsessively because that sounds like maybe it's pathological. But but if you can find a thing that you'll you know you'll sit down, you'll start doing it, and hours later you kind of snap out of it where did the time go um then um that's a really key discovery for anyone to make about themselves when they're young uh because if you don't have that um it's hard to uh to figure out where you should put your energies you know and and as you might have the best intentions you might say I you know I want world peace or whatever uh but um, uh, at, at the end of the day, what really matters is how do you spend your time? Mm-hmm. And and are you spending it in a way that's productive? Uh, and um, uh, because it doesn't matter how smart
0: you are or well-intentioned you are unless you've figured that out. And so it's finding that thing in which you can sort of, you naturally lose yourself in. Mm-hmm. See, the thing is, um, at least for me, there's a lot of things like that, but I first have to overcome the initial hump of really sucking at that thing. Like the fun starts a little bit after the first hump of really sucking. And then you could suck just regularly. <laughs> yeah. So often people oftentimes people can give up too early, I think. I mean that's true with mathematics for me. It's it's for a lot of people. Is if you just give it a chance and struggle, if if you give yourself time to struggle, you'll find a way, you'll find the thing within that thing that you can lose track of time with.
1: Yeah, that's a key detail That um, uh, that's an important thing to add to, to what I said, which is that uh, this might not happen the first time you do a thing. Right. Maybe it will, but um, uh, you might have to climb that learning curve. And um, if there's pressures in your life that are making you feel bad about that, then um, it might prevent you from from getting where you need to be. Um, so there's some complexity there uh, that make can make this kind of non obvious. Um, but uh, that's what that's why we need you know good teachers. Um, you know, another beneficial thing uh, of the internet is YouTube and being able to learn things how to do things on youtube the 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 dude who made the youtube video doesn't care how many times you hit pause and rewind um they're never going to like roll their eyes and and be impatient with you um
0: and sometimes uh spending a huge amount of time on one video or one book like making that the thing you just spend a huge amount of time on rereading rereading or rewatching rewatching that that somehow really um solidifies your love for that thing and like the depth of understanding you start to gain and it's okay to stay with that Mm -hmm. i used to think like there's all these books out there so like i need to keep reading or keep reading but then I, i realized um i think it was somewhere in college uh uh, where you could just spend your whole life with a single textbook. There's enough in that textbook, yeah, to yeah. really, really stay.
1: M- Miesner, Thorne, and Wheeler, Gravitation, you know, is is one of those. Or another one is um, the Road to Reality by Roger Penrose, which is just incredibly deep. And it starts with like two plus two equals four, and it at the end you're at the boundaries of of physics. Uh, it's an amazing. Amazing book.
0: Let me ask you the big, ridiculous question. Okay. Since you've pondered some big, ridiculous questions in your work, what's the meaning of this whole thing? What's the meaning of life? Wow. Human life?
1: Well, as far as I know, we're unique in the, the universe. There's no evidence that there's anything else in the universe that's as complicated as what's between our ears. Might be. You can't rule it out. but um, <clears throat> So we appear to be pretty special. And um, so it's got to have something to do with that. And one of the reasons I like David Deutsch, in particular his book, The Beginning of Infinity, um, is that he talks about the power of explanations and the fact that um, most civilizations are static, that they've got a set of dogmas that they arrive at somehow, and they just pass those on from one uh, generation to the next and nothing changes. But that huge changes have happened when people sort of follow whatever you want to call it, the scientific method or the enlightenment. Uh, uh, there's different ways of thinking about it, but basically explanatory, it's, it's about the power of, of explanations and being able to uh, figure out why things are the way they are. And that has created changes in our um, thinking and our way of life over the last few centuries that are explosive compared to anything that came before. And David sort of verges on classifying this as like a force of nature in, in its potential transformative power. If, if we keep going... Um, you, you know, we could, uh, you know, if we figure out how to colonize the universe, like you were talking about earlier, how to spread to other star systems, um, then it is effectively a, a force of nature.
0: This kind of drive to understand more and more and more, deeper and deeper and deeper, and to engineer stuff so that we can understand even more. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, the well. It's the old the, the universe created us to to understand itself. Maybe that's the uh, the whole purpose. Yeah, it's it is an interesting peculiar side effect of the way we've been created. Is we seem to be conscious beings. We seem to have little egos. We seem to uh, be born and die pretty quickly. There's a bunch of drama. We're all you, within ourselves pretty unique and we fall in love and Mm -hmm. start wars and there's hate and all the, the full interesting dynamic of it. So it's not just about the individual people yeah. somehow like the concert that we played together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. And there's a lot of peculiar aspects of that, that um, I wonder if they're fundamental or just quirks of evolution, whether it's, whether it's death, whether it's love, whether all those things, I wonder if they're, um, from an engineering perspective, when we're trying to create that intelligent toaster that listens for the, for the slam door <laughs> and, the, and the smell of burning toast, whether uh, that toaster it should be afraid of death and should fall in love just like we do. Neil, you're a fascinating human being. You've impacted the lives of millions of people well, it thank is you. a huge honor that you would spend your valuable time with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming down uh, it was beautiful, a, hot Texas. And thank you for talking today. It was a pleasure. I'm glad I came and did it. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Neil Stevenson. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from Neil Stevenson himself in his novel, Snow Crash. The world is full of things more powerful than us. But if you know how to catch a ride, you can go places. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.